This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. Revenge. I must have. Revenge. Well, hello, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series, one animated TV season at a time. I am your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, man? Nothing much. How are you? I am doing quite well. Uh, feeling a lot less stressed this week <laughs> listening to our recording. Uh, as I was editing, I was like, man, we, we sound like we're about to have like a nervous breakdown or something. But I'm feeling better now. Uh I think I figured out a simpler way to take notes and all that, so hopefully it'll be a bit smoother sailing from now on, <laughs> he says. Yeah, that is, unless we can bring up Jurassic World somehow. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, let's not do that. Oh, fine. We'll keep. We'll stay on topic. Yeah. I mean, I, hey, I, I'm ready to fight about that if you are. Um, an irrelevant minisode we'll have. All right. Uh, so this week we are still in the uh, CGI animated Clone Wars series. Uh, we will be reviewing season four tonight, and we get to talk about Umbara, which is awesome. Yeah, I've been waiting to get to this one for a while. I, if it's not my favorite, it's tied for my favorite arc of the series. Yeah. Just uh, we'll, we'll we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll rave later. Uh, so before we begin our discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you could leave a five-star review, that would make us quite happy. And if you don't want to leave five stars, just go away and leave us alone. Uh, and again, as before, there just isn't a lot of behind-the-scenes information available, so we're not going to do any of that. We're just going to dive directly into our discussion of the episodes. So let's begin our review of Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 4 Battle Lines. So the opening arc in this series is uh, is the uh, Mon Calamari arc, and it begins with the episode Water War, which is directed by Dwayne Dunham, and the arc is written by Jose Molina. Uh, this one, Civil War, erupts on Mon Cala after the Mon Calamari king is assassinated. The Quarren and Separatist forces led by Rift Tamsin attack the young prince Lee Char and the Mon Calamari, and the, blah, 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 and the Mon Calamari who are aided by Anakin, Padme, and Captain Akbar. I right, just start off games. What do you think about this arc? Uh, I actually enjoy it for the most part. Uh, I think it may go on a bit too long. Um, mm-hmm. There's sometimes where some repetitive stuff happens, but I really like most most of it. Um, I think just the the general plot is pretty cool. With like this underwater civil war, um, one of my favorite things about this whole arc is just the visuals of it. Uh, I love the way everything underwater is like visualized. The lighting I think is really really cool. Yeah, even even when it kind of got slow, the like the way the battles are portrayed, we've, everybody's got like these little water speeders, or their, you know, their species can just swim around, and I think lightsabers and lasers, everything, it just looks, it's a really interesting looking uh, environment. Yeah, it is surprising just you know for how limited the resources they had for this show, how well they were able to convey the fact, the idea that they're underwater, just be particles, or just the way they move and swim and. Uh, the way explosions are kind of like this flash of light and the kind of this uh, vacuum as the um as the water crushes back down it's just a lot of really cool visuals that are constantly reminding you that you're underwater it it seems like that's what they're really after they just really wanted to make an underwater uh arc yes yeah i really enjoy the battles i think just the the fact that you don't have necessarily have the same up and down and and or like battleground that you would normally have you have the whole 360 um atmosphere available to where you could you can you know come in from up above or beneath and just it's really 
they do a lot with this idea, just the way the battles are set up, um, that, you know, it sets it apart from just your average uh, Clone Wars battle in the show. Yeah, it's cool, like, the way they use, like, the different tubes that travel from the different locations in the city. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's really cool seeing it. It's funny, like, uh, this is kind of irrelevant to this episode, but I feel like all this is... This and the the ending of the last seat is where Lucas, who originally didn't want to really just keep bringing in any sort of like legacy characters, I feel like this is around the time when he's like, "No, screw it, I'm gonna bring them all." Because you know we have coming off of Chewbacca and Tarkin, and now we're opening up with like an Akbar centric plot. But I think it's cool. Oh, he's, he's I really like Akbar in this. Um, because it kind of, kind of moves like the main arc of this is kind of with Lee Char trying to learn to become a leader he was his father his father a well-respected and loved king was assassinated and he's you know still a pretty young guy and he has you know, very little experience and he's being thrust onto this stage in the middle of a civil war and he kind of has to learn to become a king and what i really love about uh akbar in this is that he is at every step of the way no matter what is happening trying to reinforce and prop up Lichar and he's like he's making sure that all decisions kind of come through his mouth even if it's Anakin or Padme or himself telling the king what he needs to do he has to, he makes sure that everyone around him is hearing it coming from the king and it's just really cool to see him constantly just supporting his king and trying to build him up into the person that he needs to be because this you know this is a situation in crisis and he's probably not qualified to be king but he is and so he has to try and craft this young man into into someone that everyone around him is willing to follow yeah at the very beginning it almost felt like there was the potential for him to be like this guy is not qualified i don't like we this really isn't going to work out but the second you know it's just made evident like lichar is king this is our like we have to we have to win the civil war and we cannot do it by giving him up as king. And like the second that's just made clear, Akbar's entire like goal and solution to everything revolves around, like you said, propping him up and ensuring that authority comes from him. Um, and it never feels manipulative either. Like it never feels like he's saying, like, well, really, you should do this. He's like explaining things through him, um, like giving genuine like history lessons and relevant you know ideas throughout but always like it never feels like he's like trying to twist his words or anything he's he's doing it in, a, in an above reproach manner yeah and i just like the characterization on lee char himself he's he's you know very young and naive but not to a point where it's annoying like he's he's very well intentioned and you see that and he does learn and grow till by the end he's willing to make these ultimate sacrifices for his people and is always always putting them and their welfare welfare far above any kind of personal safety or comfort. Um, and it's really nice to see him grow into that and uh, having Ahsoka by his side for the majority of the arc. And you get to see her pass on what she's learned from all these other great, Je great leaders and Jedi onto him as he's slowly, because the first half of the series, it's all, other people telling him what to do and, and then later on as we go all of that is taken away and he has to become his own person and make up his make his own decisions it, it's really it's just really nice seeing him grow into that yeah like it, it does kind of seem like almost a common theme of this show to take these kind of characters that you know in lesser hands would kind of 
really fall into very generic pitfalls and uh, annoying archetypes. But here, you know, it takes that idea of the, of the naive young leader, um, but it it makes a full character around it. And I think part of that is because they were given like such a lengthy amount of time to flesh his character out. Um, so any faults he has, it's not just like a one big one or hit you all at once. It's like you you kind of grow with the character over over the entire arc. Um, and, you know, because it's so long, it doesn't really feel rushed either. And I like that it, the the arc is not him becoming more confident in himself and realizing he's the right person for the job and becoming a badass. It's him realizing that the importance is not himself, but it's his people. The, like, the great things he does is, you know, sneaking into the prison camp and inspiring his people and and the way he ra- he's able to rally uh, the Quarren as well, who are originally enemies, he's able to get them back on their side. It's it's by you know pointing his leadership back out on, onto the people and, and bringing them to himself that he's able to become the king, not just by you know becoming awesome and cool. Another really cool character in this arc is a uh, Rift Tamson, who's oh, yeah. the big he's this scary shark man. And I love that he's always swimming like a shark. They're having the kind of the council meeting and he's just circling around above and he's never stops moving. And he's also really, really scary in action. I'm surprised just how violent they get with him. The way he doesn't use weapons, he just charges at you and bites your head off or whatever. Yeah. A lot of time, you know, whenever you write that a character is scary, you may not even mean like, oh, I was actually scared. Like, but you know, he's definitely more of a threatening. Like to me, this guy really kind of was scary on the on the battlefield, um, particularly in the scene with the tube as they're you know racing down, and he's just bashing his head against mm. it, and he's like cracking it as they go. And then there's a scene that you know you've got the four people behind him, and he just in about two seconds just chomps all four of them up and s- swings them around violently. It's it's very graphic. Um, but yeah, I, I love the character because he doesn't just work uh, out on the field, but like you said, he, and just the political hearings and discussions and things like that. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not, you know, subtle or anything, but I think it's, it is really cool. You, you think of a shark like circling its prey and that's, that's what he's doing even just politically. Like he is physically just kind of swimming around the people as he, as he, you know, brings them down verbally, uh, I think the voice actor does a really good job, um, and he's just the design of him is awesome. He's very bulky. He doesn't look cheesy. It doesn't look like they just took a, a man's body and crammed like a shark head on it. It looks like an actual creature. Um, yeah, I, just, I think it's a really really cool character, and I think they are able to do a whole lot with him across like three full episodes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I don't care for much, and you mentioned this, how it feels like they're repeating things. Like, it seems like all the battles kind of move, and there's like two or three of them. They kind of have the same movements where you have the two armies against each other, the good guys are losing, and then an army of reinforcements comes in, and they start winning again, and then the separatists bring out a secret weapon, and they're defeated. First time it's with uh, Kit Fisto arrives with the uh, water clones, and then they're defeated. In second episode in Gungan Attack, um, they they arrive, uh, Jar Jar comes with the uh, army of Gungans. Yay. I actually like Jar Jar in this. No, he I was about to say, this is the one episode where I'm not really that that mad at him. I kind of like some of the stuff he does. Yeah, actually, it, it's Ahmed Best comes back as he had left for a little bit, but he comes back as Jar Jar. And he also voices Boss Leone, but 
he actually does good things and doesn't break anything. I just, I just don't understand what is happening with Jar Jar. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't even know if it's the same guy. And what's weird is he, he does good things and he does them intentionally. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, he's, he's the one who convinces the Gungans that they need to go help Padme. And as much as I've always disliked Jar Jar, it kind of warmed my heart to see him, you know, leading them, being the first to dive over in that awesome shot of the hundreds oh. of Gungans jump diving out of the uh, Star Destroyer into the water. That was awesome. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. I, I kind of have the exact, about the repetitiveness, I kind of have the exact same thing written down in my notes where, you know, we end the very first episode on a defeat and a retreat. Like, oh, okay, we'll get them next time. Uh, the next episode, it's the exact same thing. It's a defeat and we're retreating. Like, we're retreating with even less this time. Now it's, it's just Lee Char and Ahsoka, but it's the same beat, you know? More, more than the retreat and the defeat, it's reinforcements winning yeah. and defeat and retreat. It's the same, same beats. And, and also what's frustrating with, with the actual battles, um, even though I love a lot of, like, a lot of things about the way they're visualized, um, just because it, it, it almost feels like this is just two armies throwing numbers at each other. And maybe because of how intricate and tactical the battles usually are in the show, they've kind of earned this, but it does feel just like it's who has who has more disposable bodies. Like, who can just throw a bigger army at each other until one is forced to retreat. It doesn't really feel like we're watching like battle plans. I think the only tactic we really see is whenever they take the tubes to go and, and attack from behind, but they only take like five guys. And when those five guys die on the way there, they're like, well, we're screwed. Yeah, it's they do a lot to try and vary the action. Like there's a lot of different elements they have. We have the Jedi, Gungans, uh, water droids, the hydroid Medusas that the, when they turn the squid, uh, the 50,000 leaves under the sea, squid monster into a, a, a whirlpool. Like they do a lot of stuff to try and vary the type of action but it does start to feel a little repetitive because, as yes, you say, it just it's kind of like two armies swimming at each other, shooting, and it's never bad. And they're always they they are they do have some really cool shots. So that the last the final battle after um the failed execution, we have the two sides clash. It's this this one shot of the two sides coming at each other. It's like they they do really cool things, but it is something about the way the water inhibits inhibits the movement it just it does feel it gets kind of tedious yeah but uh, that's i think that is one of the positives about this show though is or about this season you know even even when it does kind of get repetitive it's never like overtly bad um they do find ways to make it interesting to look at and and to follow i think the big jellyfish type creatures were really cool Mm mm-hmm uh, so finally, they're all they're all captured, and Anakin and Kit Fisto are put into electric eel cages. Okay, I guess. Hey, it works. Yeah, and I love how Kit Fisto can stay still, and Anakin keeps getting shocked. Yeah, it helps to stop talking. And the way they use their force here was, I thought, pretty cool. Like creating a, a bubble of air for Padme, um, mm-hmm. stuff like that was really cool. The way the force was visualized, mostly, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of force usage under there, but just seeing Jedi be awesome even underwater was cool. And uh, R- R- Riff Tamsin's end, well, first he, ha- he has those knife bombs, which are just awesome and terrifying. <laughs> just th- th- This episode, I don't know, like, this show has always had people dying, but the deaths felt a lot more brutal for some reason. I'm not entirely sure what it was. 
Like, every, maybe it was... I think it was probably because it was actually people... Like, it was, it was Mon Calamari. It was Gungans. Like, it's usually droids and clones dying. And the Quarren. Here, it was mostly actual people dying. Are you saying the clones, say clones aren't are people? No, 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 but you don't see their faces. They're all armored. They, they, they... You don't see their face as they die, kind of thing. I think I think part of it here was you know being set underwater. You know, as you die, your body just kind of goes limp, and you see the battlefield is just strewn about with these lifeless corpses floating around. That too, but uh, those knife bombs are so cool. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, when uh, Lee Char finally blows him up, and we see his head, uh, Tamsin's head, float by the camera, like one of his one side of his jaw is just. I don't know how they got away with this. Yeah. Very, but it, it's awesome. It felt very. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that shot is meant to be very reminiscent of Jaws. It's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, blow up, blow up. But, uh, Smile, you. I was, fact, I was waiting for that line. <laughs> just, I, I think the, the last things that I, I liked, uh, there's just more aesthetic things and, and visual and sound things. I love um, that whenever they're making the request to... Uh, to the the Gungans, although I guess we'll be able to talk more about this and um, the the next more Gungan centric one was uh, the return of like the underwater music, that kind of the vocal choir, uh, stuff like that. And the next one is is Shadow Warrior, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell and written by Bonnie Mark. In this one, Anakin and Padme go to Naboo to try and reason with Boss Leone, who, under the influence of Rish Lu, is moving to attack Thebes with the help of Grievous and a Separatist army. And I feel kind of nervous saying this, but I kind of sort of like Jar Jar in this episode. Um, maybe like Strong, but I don't mind him at all, and I kind of, I'm actually rooting for him in certain moments. So, <laughs> yeah, like. Um like what he was in the last one, you know, some of his victories here actually are intentional and he, he seems to be working, uh, you know, with everybody and to towards specific goals. And he's not a coward hiding under things. And yeah. And he's actually providing valuable information at times. And, it, you know, he, he's the one who has to go and sit with Grievous in a room by himself and he does it. And yeah, I mean, there's he doesn't he trips like twice i think and uh, yeah he's a he's just a normal character who actually you know is a benefit to the universe i mean shock <laughs> but I, I do want to praise uh ahmed best for the way he because he voices both jar jar and boss leone and he has to voice jar jar playing boss leone so he's still distinctly jar jar but he has to kind of make it as if Jar Jar's trying and failing to mimic Leone. It's a really funny uh, thing, just trying to listen to him and knowing he's the same guy. Yeah, and I I like that, that he he is, you know, when he's voicing Jar Jar playing him, that's exactly what he's doing. He's voicing Jar Jar playing him. He's not just voicing the other character he plays. And I, I kind of like the fact that they, since the Gungans were kind of, Jamaican-ish stereotypes. The fact that they kind of went full Caribbean with Rishlu being this witch doctor with voodoo magic and all of that. It's just I, I, I like that they kind of just owned up to it and like, what the heck, we'll do it. The Gungans have their own magic. I don't. It feels a lot like the Night Sisters magic. Kind of, it's that green glow. Uh, but it's fun just just seeing that there are other things out there than just you know the Jedi and the Sith. Yeah, and I'm still kind of torn on it. But well, and. I am. I'm really torn on this 
episode as a whole. Like there are good things that the fact they kind of sort kind of sort of redeem Jar Jar. They have this crazy witch doctor fight. There's two really awesome lightsaber fights, but it it really feels unnecessary. And the way the the way the plot is constructed and the conflicts are introduced and resolved feels so contrived. Like General Grievous comes down, he has a, a whole army of droids to attack Naboo. In which case, like, I don't understand why they would even bother allying with the Gungans. Like, it doesn't seem like it's a nece- it's, it's all that necessary. They they can you know they can take on <laughs> the Naboo's um, security force themselves. They did it once, and the fact that the Gungans are able to just turn off all the clones, I never even figured out exactly how they did that. But they they somehow go and turn off the the droids. And so, and then that, that's how they capture Grievous. And also Count Dooku is just sitting in some ruins on Naboo. Like, why is he even on planet for the, the first place? Like, it doesn't seem that the original plan was to capture Anakin. The plan became capture Anakin after Grievous was captured. So they can have a prisoner exchange. But he's just on this planet chilling somewhere, not actually with his men. And so that leaves Anakin being captured and then they're exchanged at the end and it's like nothing ever happened. Just the whole table's reset. And it's like, why do we even watch all this? And and it's like they tried so hard to contrive with forced plot points to make this episode irrelevant. Yeah, it is really weird where the the prisoner exchange isn't a resolution to anything that came before. It's, It's a resolution to, you know, a an obstacle the plot threw in well over halfway through so it's it just feels very very forced and unnecessary it's it's like they're creating their own loose end they have to tie up and then all of a sudden tying up that loose end becomes resolving the entire episode for some reason um and yeah it dooku being there is so convenient especially considering we've got three full seasons behind us of knowing that he's never or almost never on the planet he's on he's always just coming in through some like through a hologram or or something uh and so his actual physical presence being there and just in a cave no less makes no sense um however there are two elements that i really like in this episode one is the duel between grievous and anakin which is just really cool and well shot and i love that it takes grievous and four of the uh the guard droids to take anakin down like he's keeps He's able to hold, he can hold zone against the four. He also, he keeps pursuing, um, not Grievous, Dooku. And like you have all four of the uh, droids with their shock sticks into him and he's able to throw them all back. And it's only after like, he's been way beaten down that uh, Dooku is finally able to come in and take him out. It's just a really well done and brutal scene. Yeah, the, the choreography there is is really cool. Uh, the only thing, um, and this is maybe just a little bit petty, the only thing that... I was not really a fan of is it it feels like you know, so much of of the series has been like you know Dooku pursuing Anakin like they fought before and Dooku has you know tried to kill him before and I'm sure you know killing Anakin would be a a huge victory and they they'd seize any opportunity they can but he like just being able to best him and to kill him on the field of battle has always eluded them but the second they say, hey, we got to capture Anakin so we can trade him. Like, one fight and he's captured. It's like, why don't you do this but to kill him? 
<laughs> but as far as the actual fight itself goes, it is really cool. I love the way the force is visualized where it's just you can kind of see the anger in Anakin being pent up and then he just when he releases it and all the droids go flying and then and then Dooku almost does the same and he just throws him up against the wall. Uh it looks really cool. Yeah. And on the other side, I really like the uh Tarpauls versus uh Grievous fight. It's pretty short, but I I've, I've always liked Tarpauls from even when he was in a when you know the Phantom Mass, you know, no giving up, General Jaja, please think of something. And of course, the classic and, line: "You saw in big Puru this time." Exactly, yeah. And um, you know, to see him go at it with Grievous, and then Grievous stabs him. He's like, "Well, not failure, sacrifice." And he stakes the spear through Grievous, and all the other guys just throw their um balls. I love just how brutal it is when they take him down. Like they, they throw all the blue balls and short him out and then they come and just stick stakes through all his limbs and his body and dr- literally drag him away with stakes. Yeah, the biggest my biggest takeaway from that fight is like who would have thought that that a, a battle between Tarpaul's and Grievous first of all would ever happen and second of all would actually be this cool. Yeah, and he Tarpaul's dies but he, he dies a hero and it made me sad actually. The coolest Gungan yeah. Next episode is Mercy Mission and directed by Danny Keller and also written by Bonnie Mark. And this is the first of two droid centric episodes where we have R2D2 and C3PO bumbling around through various planets and meeting crazy civilizations. So for the first one, Commander Wolf is leading a Republic relief effort to Aileen after a devastating earthquake and through a series of mishaps, C-3PO and R2-D2 find themselves in a strange underground world. And first off, why the heck are R2-D2 and C-3PO even here? These are the, well, one is Anakin's personal protocol droid, not protocol droid, uh, mech droid, and the other one is Queen Amidala's personal protocol droid. Why are they in this relief effort on the, you know, some far corner of the galaxy connected to Commander Wolf? I have no idea, because they need to be. Exactly. Uh, Although they don't even really need to be because these episodes don't even need to exist. No, they don't. But, oh well. Because any astromech droid and protocol droid could do it. <laughs> I love the line when we see... It, the creatures are that little... The little guy in the pod race who goes, ah, before he crashes into a pillar. R.I.P. I, I, lo- I love how they can just pick some random creature and you know they'll be the the main characters in this episode they look like little kind of happy childlike dinosaurs and they're also aztec for some reason yeah it's a it's a weird like hodgepodge of different like cultural ideas in there i think like as far as the aliens go you know i don't need an episode surrounding them but i kind of they're just there's something about them that just felt right for star wars and maybe it's just because you know, we're dealing with the same series as Ewoks and Jawas and stuff, but I'm like, oh, they're kind of cute. Um, I don't entirely buy they could build this advanced of a civilization. Oh, no, not at all. I love one of the clones like, great, it's going to be another one of those planets. <laughs> <laughs> so, And speaking of the clones, though, uh, Wolf and his squad look amazing. Probably some of the coolest looking clones of the series. The Wolf Pack? Yeah. They, they just look like, especially him and like, uh, like the sleek designs on his helmet, very like visually cool. Mm-hmm. So, uh, R2 and C3PO, they fall underground and they meet, uh, glowing ants and a fairy dust pixie frog creature thing. And they talk to her 
and then the ground spits them out and they're eaten by a flower and then they save the world. It's weird. <laughs> it's really weird. Yeah, honestly, this is what I expect from like a very like a an obviously non-canon like children's storybook or something. It, it's you know, I've actually really enjoy what Disney has done, but like I think that's because they don't try to force Disney on it. This felt more Disney than anything we've ever had this new era where we literally have like fairy dust coming together to create like this actual like that whole visual element did not work well for me at all. And and like floating up like that the giant flower petal opening up. I'm like are we in Alice in Wonderland right now? Like what is going on? It's just this whole the whole visual language of this episode. I understand these two are like just a complete one-off. But to me, canon is canon, whether it's on screen for two minutes or like an entire film, we now have to accept that this exists in this universe. And I just, I don't like having to accept that. Yeah. So the, the earthquakes are happening because a seal has been broken and air is coming down to this underground world and it's poisonous to the creatures down there. So they are somehow causing earthquakes and R2-D2 and C-3PO are there to stop it. And, you know... we are they're, they're trying the creatures out from the underground are trying to save their own lives and she won't tell them how to fix it instead she gives them a riddle and runs away it, it just it makes no sense any of it it's just like let alone all the weird wacky mystical things just the very the basic character motivations uh don't add up if that happens i don't really care <laughs> and next episode no man droids directed by Stuart lee and written by steve mitchell and craig von stickle so this one opens up. They're on a on a Republic ship that's being attacked by Grievous, and they escape in a B-wing. And it's like it's. I love how this. Oh, I don't love it. But it's kind of funny how in this episode we're constantly passing by far more interesting stories. As the the as there is the the separatists have attacked, and as they're escaping, they roll by this fight where Adigalia is like fighting Grievous, and we just kind of roll by like, hey, why don't we watch that instead? See, okay, I actually do kind of love that. Um... What it reminded me of was, um, if you've ever been to like Disneyland or World and ridden Star Tours, this is this was that. Like, it's just, I mean, I guess in the actual ride, you know, it's it's actual events from the films that we've seen, uh, or just inspiration from it. But it's, and C three PO is actually the director of the whole ride, and he's like kind of leading you on this spaceship adventure, and it is just flying through all these different events, and we're like, oh wow, I remember that. Oh wow, like look at that. And that's what this felt like, you know, we're just kind of with these two people trying to get away from all of the stuff happening around them. And uh, I actually don't mind this episode nearly as much as the last one. There's there's some uh, stuff here I kind of like. Yeah, it is better, Bob. Like, oh, look, a far more interesting story. Bye-bye. And so they land on a planet of Lilliputians, and we have Gulliver's Travels, uh, where <laughs> they're ruled by this fat blue creature. <laughs> so morbid, C-3PO knocks R2-D2 over and squashes him. And when he tra- squashes the uh, the big Heizu, who's the leader of these creatures, and when he tries to pull him up, it's just like this sticky goop coming off. And uh, R2-D2 has a, just a big blue stain on his front Dude. for the rest of the episode. Yeah, honestly, this one... It, like, I, I kind of wish... Actually, not even kind of. I, I do wish I could just wish away the last episode from existence but i would allow this one to to remain just because <laughs> it's i mean it is gulliver's travels it's wizard of oz it's all of these fantastical 
elements and that we've seen from so many different stories, but it's really fun to me. Uh, I don't know. There's something, <laughs> there's something endearing about the whole episode. <laughs> the the line that you have quoted, which just says, "Congratulations, now you are a democracy." Like, and then they immediately just, start killing each other again. <laughs> it's it's really it's surprisingly dark, but I don't know, it's I like the episode. Yeah, and uh, and so the next adventure is they go to another planet. They lift off and crash land again. And this one, as he says, the Wizard of Oz. We have these cre- these the natives are being controlled by this giant hologram who will <laughs> strike you dead with lightning if you argue. And R2-D2 goes over and opens a door and it turns out to be a bunch of little pit droids and all the uh, all the natives find out and go to kill them all. So, again, super dark. But, I mean, I was entertained. I really was. Uh, and the, the final one is is they, uh, they are picked up by Weequay Pirates and they're <laughs> droid, they're thrown into a droid cage match, uh, and forced to kill each other, and then then they're attacked by separatists and sucked down into space. And R two D two flies them onto the separatist ship, and then they're attacked by Plo Koon, and hey, they're rescued. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a weird one. Yeah. And here we are. Next one is uh, Darkness on Umbara. This is directed by Stuart Lee, and the entire arc is written by Matt, Matt Mishnovitz. During the Battle of Umbara, Anakin is forced to leave his clone troops, uh, the 501st, under the command of the cruel and arrogant Jedi Master Pong Krell. And this one's good. This one is... Mm, this is why this show is a must for Star Wars fans. Yeah. Um, and just where to start? Just the, the visuals in this episode are beyond belief um the the way it's it's, it's like a, this jungle with glowing plants is kind of this blue green glow to everything but everything is shrouded in mist like when they come in for the invasion it's these ships they kind of they just descend into the mist and it's like we've entered another world in this really oppressive atmosphere where you can only see a couple hundred feet in any direction because there's all this mist and jungles everywhere and it just feels like you've entered into a whole other world, and all you have is you know a hundred feet on either side, and everything else is trying to kill you. It just now I've used this phrase before, but it really does get under your skin. There's something about the way this planet is realized, the the visuals, and the, the fact that there's always an unseen enemy constantly attacking you. You know, we, we've had World War Two, World War One, and a lot of other various. Uh, influences kind of European front, Pacific front into the battles like we have with Point Rain or the, what's the other one? The uh, Ryloth arc. But here, this is completely a Vietnam movie. We are we're placed in this, in the darkness and the muck and the enemies, like they, they, it's, it's something that happened when America was fighting, whether it be the Japanese or the Vietnamese, they, they they don't fight like Europeans. They would and the same in this episode. They they don't fight like they're used to fighting. They'll they'll just like sneak out of the dark and come kill you. They just kind of melt away, and you can just you don't fight them the way you're used to, and so it just becomes this grueling test of endurance where you just have to just keep taking one step at a time, and at any moment these guys can come swarming out of the darkness and you'd be fighting for your life and all of a sudden they're gone again. And it doesn't and no matter how many you kill, it doesn't feel like you're making any progress at all. 
And this this episode is so beautifully be able to replicate that just the horror of that kind of warfare on these troops. Yeah, the the visuals here really are like it's I really can't say enough positive things about them. Um I know I, I talked about probably several times throughout this uh series about how how much I like uh when when lengthy arcs are able to establish a tone and carry that over multiple episodes and th- here we get four episodes that create this mood like a minute into the episode and just never lets up and almost just gets worse and worse in the best kind of way over all four episodes where it just you feel even as a viewer just oppress like it, the the tone feels oppressive and dark and unnerving um and, and seeing the way the clones react to it, you know, with, with Rex and, and with Fives who's back and is probably, I think, with this episode kind of become my favorite of the clones. They're, they're always, if, you know, like even in the face of death, they're always, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to get it done. I, you never really see them worried. Here, you know, with the with the bickering within the squads, the a general, you know, who seems to not care at all about them and uh this kind of army that they're fighting that's like nothing else for the first time you almost feel like clones are panicking like this is this is certainly not what they trained for on Camino. um it's just so different and i love that the the technology i i, I there's a line where they acknowledge it they're like we've never seen technology like this and it's just cool to me that there's this there's this alien race that's just away on this consistently dark and creepy planet that has all this technology we've never seen and we're now just like just having to try to not only be introduced to it but actually battle against it um because usually as the viewer we're the ones seeing all this new technology and being told how it works but here we're actually seeing the clones be like i I don't know what to do i don't know what this is i don't know how they're gonna attack us you really do feel like you're with them like boots on the ground just trying to survive yeah, because it, it's not just the enemy, because they, they have these crazy, like that, the walking cannon or the set, the centipede train or whatever, the, the, the burrowing. Which looks amazing. Yeah. And just the, everything about the thing, the, uh, the way these things, these machinery is, is so foreign. Just, just the way they have their hands in like these force field bubbles and they, it's, it's, there's no moving parts in the cockpits. It's all through like projections and force fields and the fact that they don't have any weapons that can shoot these things down. So it's just the battles feel so hopeless. And not only are the enemies like far out, able to far out match them, the, like the jungle itself is trying to kill you. You have these light, like these uh, landmine monsters on the ground, another tentacle monster uh, that'll eat you if you step on them. And then these giant flying uh, bug creatures that'll, kill you it's it's like everything here is going to kill you but now that it, it, it's it's nothing you've ever seen before it is something so totally different from any kind of frame of reference you have yeah and, and to talk about just you know more of the, the actual plot of this episode um you know after this incredible invasion um <laughs> i remember whatever I, I think i've shown this on two separate occasions to two different people where I'm trying to convince them to watch the show and Netflix mm-hmm. is just over. I'm like, well, I'll, I'll just show you what it's like. I always just show them the the initial invasion on Umbara <laughs> just because of how incredible it is. Um, and I'm two for two, so. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, 
Yeah, after this just phenomenal action sequence, we're introduced to General Krell. Um, and what I like about his introduction is it almost leads you to believe that this is going to be the situation where he's he's overly by the books, he's callous, he's cold. But at the end of the day, maybe after a, you know a nice war, like a, a nice bonding experience on the battlefield, he'll warm up to you and like a bond will be formed. Um, it kind of, you know, I mean, he, he goes further than you would think on those typical kind of stories. Uh, and me as a fan of Rex, I almost get triggered when he doesn't call him by his name. Uh, like this is you you put respect on this name um but you know by the end of it whenever i think it's fives or someone who's saying like that almost sounded like he gave you a compliment you're thinking okay uh we're gonna we're gonna see a character redeemed and so i think you know just having their the way they butt heads be more than mild but not we're like okay this guy is just straight up evil like you're not really sure how the how the arc is fully gonna play out yeah it's it Again, the everything about the atmosphere and the enemies is designed to keep you on edge and keep you in the dark. And the same thing with uh, with Krell. He comes in and he's all about, you know, just throwing all the troops you need into battle and just wor- winning through sheer uh, brute force. Whereas Anakin was always, you know, trying to find a way around the enemy and, and uh, you know, using strategy. Krell is just throw all you've got at them and you do whatever it takes to win that way. And and that that that's not like that doesn't make you evil. That just you know, there are plenty of generals and, and in real in history that were like that. And and as you said, you know, he he constantly plays that line of obviously he doesn't care he doesn't care about clone lives. He's he's constantly pushing them harder and harder and making them go into situations where they absolutely should not be in. But he also occasionally will step back and allow Rex to give an idea. And as you said, towards the end, he kind of gives him a compliment. And he's also shown to be a, an excellent warrior himself when those bug creatures fly down and he takes them both out by by himself. It's like it's a, a whole bunch of kind of contradictions in his character that just keep you on edge. You, don't, you really do not know where he's going to go. And as we go on and on, he, he keeps putting the clones into worse and worse situations and then they rebel and and get the two uh, fighters, and he's like, "Okay, uh, yeah, I ordered you not to do that, but you won, so cool. We'll we'll just keep moving on." Again, yeah, it does feel like it's going towards that to where they'll end with kind of a shaky respect. Um, but then as it goes on, he just gets slowly more and more paranoid, and he's he's holding on tighter and tighter to his power, and and he just and so it just keeps going, and you just you just don't know what's going to happen. Like you don't know if is he going to be redeemed? Is he just going to go straight out evil? You just it's it's all this kind of oppressive uncertainty that just kind of eats away at you. Yeah, and so I I know it, it, I'm going to try to avoid being hypocritical because of you know we sometimes rep- like repetition and feeling tedious as a, as a criticism we've used before. But I love that like going into the next episode. We're just right back to the same situation. We're still just trying to press forward. Um, you know, we we eventually able to get to this base, but it's still it it feels like we're being so unproductive. Um, in that, you know, we keep hearing about Obi Wan and how he he needs their help and this and that. It just you because he's only communicating through a hologram, and because Anakin's not on the uh, like not on the ground with them, you just feel isolated from everything else. And so to have all of these new variables and this new general, it just 
even in episode two, you you feel less comfortable during this episode than you did before. Um, especially since you know this idea of of Krell and his leadership, it's it's not resolved yet. And one thing I love is seeing Rex try to justify Krell at first, because um, sometimes he does make a decent point, and I think the fact that he makes a semi decent point helps the helps the viewer in in not understanding where this is going and and what they plan on doing with Krell, where he's like a you know Anakin has had plans where on paper they look stupid and crazy and unwinnable and yet he always pulls through and of course Fods counter that counters that by saying yeah but he's with us but you still you kind of see that this you know this leadership uh, this new kind of leadership is really damaging this community of clones because other than the uh, clone cadet episode clones always work in like such perfect unison and you know maybe it is because they just keep operating under the same general and things like that but here to just have this army of of identical looking clones kind of break down and be like no we've got to do this and someone else saying no we have to do this it really does kind of heighten that sense of paranoia that this whole arc has and back to the animation one cool thing for this for this episode they re re remade all the clone faces or rather the one clone face to where they they're much more emotive uh, and, and it's, I think by the time you get to this episode, I think the fact that it's in the dark helps a lot, but like I am caught, like every shot, I'm just blown away by how much detail they're able to put into it. And like at the beginning, you, like, you watch the, the Clone Wars, the uh, Clone Wars movie and the faces are terrible, like super wooden. But by the time they got to about here, they, they, there's actually a, they're able to convey a lot of emotion just through facial features. Yeah, I mean, you don't even need lines of dialogue. You could just look at expressions and you know what everyone's thinking. Mm -hmm. And I just love, you know, we are so in the clone's perspective. We don't get that all that often. And 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 by this time, these guys have been around for years and they've been able to all develop their entirely unique personalities and to where they are they are completely unique individuals. And you yeah, again, you get to know them. You have uh, fives and hard case and rex and dogma and each and top and all of them kind of have their their own personalities and parts to play and you you always you know who you're looking at and you and you know what they're thinking at this moment and the fact that they're able to do this uh with one character design and one voice actor is pretty incredible yeah and i think this may be where they kind of updated the uh the clone armor from the attack of the clones um armor to the revenge of the sith where there's a lot more detail on all the helmets and they kind of come extend out a little bit more like uh, the stormtroopers. Um, and at this point, you know, Fives is an arc trooper and like the little antenna that he and, and Rex have and their like shoulder pads, they, they look awesome in this episode uh, mm -hmm. with their helmets on as well. So what you have is they, they capture this airbase uh, by disobeying orders and you've kind of come to an uneasy alliance between Krell and the troops and then he says, and, "He what?" I was just saying, that scene. I love that scene whenever they're first able to get into the flying vehicles and use them. Yes, it's just like unbridled joy. Like it was such needed, like a uh, you know cheer worthy moment after so much darkness. Yeah, because the entire episode has been just we've probably seen like at least a hundred clones die on screen, <laughs> and. 
it's just constant losses and we we just cannot this enemy is unbeatable so to have them come through hijack those two enemy ships and come through and just blow it all up you know laughing and kind of flipping around in there it's just it really shows just just how embroiled in this darkness we've been for all this time so yeah in a plan of descent there there again it feels like we finally found an understanding but yet again krell's like we're, we're gonna attack these people through these uh uh through these rocket uh showers and we're just gonna go head on we're not gonna try any other plan and by this time the clones are just done and five's hard case and who's the third one jesse yeah jesse they uh they take they take the uh umbaran fighters and go up to take out the supply ship and I love that we, we come out onto this giant battle and we don't even engage. We just kind of fly through it. It's still like one of the coolest battles in the series. Yeah. And I love everything that happens even just before that point, like the arguing about whether we can do this and, you know, how determined fives is. And the fact that, you know, Rex absolutely wants to, but he's trying to find that that line to walk where it's like, I'm, I'm with the clones, I'm with my brothers, but at the same time, we're under leadership. And you have someone like Dogma who's just ready to turn a man on a dime. Uh, I mean, I love the scene of them, like, first learning how to fly in the hangar, and you kind of got him being <laughs> Han Solo, be like, everything's fine here. Uh, no, it's just a drill. Uh, yeah. And again, like, any sort of comedic relief like that in this arc is is... A, is needed for me yeah it's that kind of battle with their in the inherent humanity and their programming rex is still fighting his programming that says yeah you have you must obey jedi and the other like fives and hard case have, have have moved past that and you you have you have those really cool debates between them so they go and destroy the uh the ship and uh hard case sacrifices himself and oh, it's man. wonderful Whenever that scene happened or the first time I watched it, I was like fighting tears. Yeah, and so they land and Krell has them arrested and says they'll be executed in the morning. And it ends on that. It's like, okay. Yeah, at that point, you're just thinking like, I mean, obviously with that cliffhanger, we'd have to have another episode. But I remember, you know, by the time this third episode had ended, I just felt like, like I thought that this was going to be resolved now because I wasn't looking ahead at the episode titles. And so just... As it ended, I'm like, man, I'm still going to have to be on Umbara for another episode. And it wasn't a negative light, but it just felt, you know, especially coming off of the, the two droid episodes. It's like... It takes something at you, man. It's the, the whole mood and atmosphere and, and the actual plot itself of what's happening. It's rough. Yeah, and by now, Krell is just going crazy. He is so paranoid about his authority. and He, he won't even wait for a court-martial. They defied him, so they have to die. And he's like snapping at all the clones and actually did he no yeah he orders them executed but then he orders a stay of execution when they get their new mission and they're told that there are clones out there that there are umbarans who have stolen clone armor um so the troops are all sent out and they run into these umbarans in clone armor and they start killing each other and then they find out that they're actually just clones is one of the most horrifying and just demoralizing sequences in this show. You have Rex running between the lines, y- yanking people's helmets off and screaming, stop, stop, you're killing your, their clones. They're not Umar's, they're clones. And the music comes up and we find Waxer was dead and we realize <sighs> that Krell set them up to kill each other. 
And he's just like, dude, you messed with the wrong clones. There's, they're just the, the sorrow and rage. The fact that, you know, all these guys have ever had is each other. That's the one they've always, they've, they've, they've called each other brothers and they've, they've had this unshaking loyalty to each other. And they've been created and bred for war and they're programmed for this, but they've, they've, they've come into their own humanity and have, you know, viewed themselves as a family. And they, 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 they're literally killing their own brothers. Like literally, these are the, as if they were, they were birth brothers, you know, to find that out. And just the sadness and rage, you see, this is the facial animation that we, we get to watch as all of them just come to realize, and they're all pulling off their helmets and just walking around shell shocked, just trying to process what they just did. It is so powerful. Yeah, that that moment of realization, because you know it doesn't happen before the fight. The fight happens for so long before the realization is made, and that music and just the tracking shot of him running around, waving his arms, yelling, "Stop!" Demoralizing is absolutely the best descriptor for that. You just feel beaten down by this episode. Like I don't, I don't want to keep watching. This is Star Wars. It's supposed to be fun, but I'm gonna keep watching because it's amazing. Um, just him ripping the helmets off of everybody and screw like just the you never hear Rex ever like this he's been challenged at a small handful of times over the series but he's just like shouting at the top of his lungs and ready to fall to his knees and, and the wax reveal oh man I did I did get a bit teared up this time uh, especially because like I just I really liked the character of Wack like I, I like his character in, in the first episode and and seeing him again on Ryloth was a treat yeah and, Waxer and was the this. clone who uh, befriended the little Twi'lek girl Mira. <sighs> yeah and so they're like all right Krell, you're going down <laughs> yeah. and the mo- I, I love just just real quick, I, I love that before you know they lead the charge back on Krell. That we we do get that moment to just kind of be forced to sit in the horror of the aftermath of that situation. You yeah. know, as as we see him just walk around and and Rex is just kind of surveying everything that just happened. Instead of a quick cut, we we do just kind of get to look around for a little bit, and it's genuinely heartbreaking. Yeah, and the and the shot of them of where they're all lined up and they all have their helmets off and they're going to take down Krell. It's one of the coolest shots, like singular shots of the entire series. Yeah. And so they come in and it turns out Krell is a traitor. Um, What? Yeah. Which this is one thing that I have a slight issue with. Like this is, this is still like a masterpiece of an arc, but I almost, I really kind of wish he had actually just been, a hard-nosed general who became paranoid of power and was, you know, taking it out on the clones. If he's a traitor, it is completely okay and without a doubt the duty of these clones to take him down. It would have been so cool if he hadn't been a traitor. He was just a destructive force that was wreaking havoc on these clones and they had to make the decision to rise up and take him out, take him down on their own, you know, abandoned by the Jedi in the middle of this hellhole, and they have to, you know, find it in themselves to be able to break their programming and take him down for the good of the Republic, despite the fact that he's one of their own, and he's a Jedi. Like, th- that. Th- th- this episode is so is so much about just paranoia and, and 
just not knowing what's going on. I kind of, I just kind of would liked if they had pushed that one step farther rather than you know, giving us a clear black and white enemy at the end. So I understand that. I'm I'm glad it turned out the way it did. Partially and maybe mainly because I don't see how you create the scene of the two clone armies fighting each other unknowingly if he's just a destructive general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only way that that makes sense is with the way it played out here where he says, you know, I've pretty much made y'all the most useless army here. I'm going to go to Dooku and he'll be impressed at the fact that I was able to make you fight each other. Uh, we were unable to get to Obi like it seems almost like that is adding to his resume uh, for Dooku and if he is just a traitor I think the most maybe the most impactful moment of the arc I don't know how you include that fair enough like, th- th- that's why this episode is still a masterpiece on its own I just and I, I totally get that but I just the idea of the clones having to literally take down a Jedi who is, for all intents and purposes, still their lawful commander. That's such a fascinating moral quandary to, to, to delve into that I think this, this episode is ripe, for, is ripe for doing. Yeah, I definitely understand why you'd want it, especially considering, you know, pursuing that and seeing the fact that when it comes to it, the clones are capable of that only makes Order 66 that much more depressing when it's like, you know, they're capable of rising up and protecting their own from like wrongful leadership. But all it takes is, you know, hearing a singular word and all, all of a sudden all of that will and determination to fight for each other is gone. And you're just going to do that. You know, I, I do think it had a cool layer, um, but I am still cool with like, like I said, I, I like the way it turned out. Yeah. And when Krell goes berserk, like it is an awesome character design that he has. He's, the, he's the, basically the creature that I, uh, yeah, he's a Besselist, the same character as uh, De- Dexter in um, Attack of the Clones. And so he has these forearms and he has these two giant double-bladed lightsabers and he knows how to use them. And when he just goes berserk and he kills a couple dozen clones escaping. And it's just, it's he's just this unstoppable force, like even more terrifying than Grievous before they finally take him down with one of the carnivorous landmines. And they have him, they have him in the cell. And I love that he's still just, so completely disdainful of the, to the clones even though he's you know he's in binders behind a wall he's still just tearing them to pieces and the, they learn that the the separatists are going to overrun the base and so they they decide they have to execute him and i love that, that rex still can't even bring himself to do it and that brings us back to dogma who has this character who has been basically what uh, echo was he's the the guy who's by the book everything has to be done by the book and he so he's up to this point been antag- openly antagonistic to Fives and Jesse who have been trying to fix the situation. Like he was going to, you know, tell on them to, to, um, to Krell. And, oh yeah. We forgot the execution scene where they, uh, they take Fives and Jesse out to execute them. And he's like gung ho. He's going to do it until finally, uh, Fives speaks. And then even though, you know, Jess, uh, Dogma goes through the, you know, ready, aim, fire, and they fire. And we see that all, all, all five of the clones have kind of shot around them. And then they, they drop their guns and you have Dogma kind of just running around yelling, just you kill them. Um, and then in the end, when he finds out that he was just used by this general, it, it just like breaks something in him. And he's the one who ends up killing Krell. And it's, you, you've kind of despised this guy all this time. You just, you feel sorry for him because 
he had given like everything he was was devoted to the Jedi and to have the guy not only betray that trust, but then turn around and just mock him for like, basically, you know, mock him for everything that he ever believed in and ever defined him, just like ripping him to shreds. And you just see how broken he is after that. It's so good. Yeah. That, that first scene, um, it's part of what, like with the the execution scene, everything leading up to it. It's part of why Fives kind of became my favorite clone. I love that. Uh, whenever, whenever Rex says, "You're like, I'm not gonna let him get away with this," and Fives just says, "Don't beat yourself up about it. We made our choice." Like, he's just so comfortable with all of his actions, and he's not second guessing himself at all. And uh, whenever we actually get to the execution scene. And right before they fire, you know, he gives his speech. I think my favorite thing about that speech is it doesn't feel like it's made an attempt to save his own life. He's not pleading for them to spare him. Like, it sounds within, like, the performance and the lines, he is way more concerned for just the clone. Like, the idea of the clones and who they are in relation to each other. He's not saying, you know, like, you know I did nothing wrong. He's like, like, we have been under bad leadership this whole time. He is breaking us apart. He is, like, putting clones, the, the kind of people who should, we should never be at our throats, and he is making us execute one of our own. Like, the fact that it's him seems irrelevant to Fives. He's just saying, like, we cannot allow Krell to do this, because if he did, then his idea of us as just, no, like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Numbers that follow orders is fully justified if you do this. It's not about it being me. It's the fact that he wins and we are fodder at this point. Like his whole speech and his whole demeanor on the whole thing. I'm like, man, this is just such a great character. Yeah. And and so they've executed Krell. Then finally Anakin comes back. And I think Anakin, maybe it's Obi-Wan. But, and they're just kind of left like thinking is just what are we even doing anymore it's just everything they, they believed in has been quest- doubted and it ends on just such a cynical bitter note it's just up till now the war has been you know there's been hard stuff a lot of people have died but it's been kind of fun and now we're just like why are we even doing this you're just you're questioning the entire like we, we we have been questioning like with the questioning the war with uh, like pursuit of peace, we've had um, Padme you know questioning the war, but kind of seeing behind the scenes of who's actually controlling. But the the the, the war the actual war side has always been, you know, clones good, separatists bad, and here we're attacking Jedi good, you know, at least beyond the order, like just the generals yeah. we've been fighting. And we've, with. we've never seen them portrayed. And like we've, we've always been fighting droids, and here we're actually attacking a native population on their own planet. And it's just the, the clones are left. Basically they're by the time the end, this episode ends, they're just completely done with the war. Like they're, they're not going to stop fighting, but they're like all the idealism and like any kind of simple notion of we're good, they're bad. And we're going to win. is just completely gone. There's such just like a sickening cynicism and darkness. This episode ends on, and you just like this show will never be the same after this episode. You cannot view the war in the same way, having been through this. And and that's what that's kind of what Vietnam was for the the American 
conscious, the American population and their view of war. Like before that, we you know we had World War II and Korea, things like where you had to clear good guys, clear bad guys. And here is just this interminable hellhole that you can never actually win. And you don't even know if you're actually the right, you don't even know if you're the good guys anymore. You're struggling to justify the entire like operation. Yeah. It's like we are, we're, we're no longer innocent children anymore. It, it, even though it's only four episodes, I almost wish there was one more that was like, not even actually just like, just live in the aftermath of it. Because, you know, we, we move right into the, uh, the slaver episode and Rex is in there. And I just want like, I want that scene where he just vents to Anakin or just someone. Run up to Anakin, hug him and cry on his shoulder. <laughs> uh, Rex? Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so I have no idea. Yeah, so next episode is Kidnapped. It's directed by Kyle Dunleavy, and this arc is by Henry Gilroy and Stephen Melching. In this one, Anakin, Ahsoka, and Obun go to the Togruta homeworld of Kairos to fight uh, invading Zygerian slavers. And this arc is actually based on a comic book that Henry Gilroy wrote after he left the show. And he basically wrote Clone Wars comic books. And then he, he was brought back on to adapt his comic book into a, an episode. Just a fun fact. So yeah, we here we go to a planet uh, of, uh, of Ahsoka's people, Togruta's. And so this, this episode is pretty simple. So after, after they, uh, they take the, uh, the city back, we find out that the Zygerian leader uh, Darts N- uh, Nadar, or D- Dinar, uh, has set up bombs over the entire city and is going to blow them up. So Obi-Wan does his favorite tactic and stalls while Anakin and Ahsoka race around and def- defusing all the bombs. And I love how he just kind of goes, Obi-Wan just goes to uh, his his uh, ship and gets the crap beaten out of him. Uh, and then this once he finally gets the word that Anakin and Ahsoka have uh, have disarmed all the bombs, he just turns around and ignites his lightsaber and like, all right, let's go at it. And he just instantly takes him out and you realize he's been playing the entire time. I, I just love this this character trait in Obi-Wan that he's he's got he's willing to be the punching bag, uh, if that's what it takes to save these people. Yeah, and again, you know, it it almost never really ends up damaging his personality. You know, he's gonna sit there and get thrown against the wall and have the crap kicked out of him for about five minutes. Uh, but the second like the ball's in his court and he's actually able to do something, he's like Back to classic Obi Wan. <laughs> yeah, um, we get a, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple of the cool scenes. We see like, these sniper droids, which are kind of like droidicas, except they're they have this one giant sniper rifle. And I like how you have Anakin and Ahsoka pinned down, and they're able to turn around at the exact same moment and deflect their, the laser coming at them into the other person's uh, uh, sniper droid at the same time. One of the things that I like a lot about this is just like their di- dynamic, and it feels like it's just been leading this way the whole time. Um, they almost feel like equals in this episode, at least as far as you know, on the battlefield, and even the way they address each other while they're on the battlefield. Like one will call something out, and the other will react to it. It feels like they're they're kind of blooming into the same dynamic that Anakin and Obi Wan yeah. have. Um, and I and you know it's cool because it feels earned because this is not at all by a long shot, the way they, they fought with each other in season one, or even two in part of season three. Like, we, we've really seen a, a relationship on the battlefield grow between the two. Yeah, and that's very fitting, because that's what we, we ended with on last season with the uh, end of uh, Wookiee Wookie Hunt. We see both of them kind of, have they, they finally figured out who they are together, 
and they 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 feel like equals then and we come into this and they and they are this like perfect coordinated working team together and it's you know it, it, i love that this show doesn't doesn't kind of doesn't revert to like a status quo again it always is advancing these characters forward and mindful of where they've been yeah so uh, it ends they win and we find out that the uh, the Zygerians have taken a, already taken a lot of uh, the Togrudas as slaves. Um, and next episode is Slaves of the Republic, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And this one, Anakin, Obi-Wan, Ahsoka, and Rex go undercover to investigate the uh, the slavers on their planet, Zygeria. And just just the, the opening of this where they're flying into the planet, and we just see hundreds of ships. It's like this one li- long line of ships going in, and one long line of hundreds of ships uh, leaving the planet and you realize that every one of those ships is probably full of slaves who are gonna have to spend the rest of their life in slavery like we, we don't know where they went we don't know who, who took them and we're never getting them back just that like it, it is never stated it just sort of kind of subtly implied like a kid would even get that but just that that knowledge is is really disturbing yeah and i like the way they play uh anakin's anger here um it doesn't feel too over the top and it, it feels in character and it's really the first time he's really had to deal with the issue of slavery you know since um i mean i guess you know the references it had in attack of the clones and and i think it says a lot that whenever obi-wan asks ahsoka about anakin's past and what she's heard about it you know all she says is all i know about it is that or the only thing he ever says about it is that he doesn't want to talk about mm-hmm. it and you know it's still just this this part of him that he doesn't like opening up about and it also makes sense with the whole uh, mortis one where like you say he can't even really bring himself to talk about his mom and like her death and you know he's always been a very forward thinking person and you don't really realize how little we really address like that so much of his history we've actually gone through with him yeah and it's such a like deep broiling hatred the, the shot in the previous episode where obi-wan has the hologram device and he's talking to the uh the enemy leader and then it's just pulled off screen and we see anakin grab it just crush it in his hand with like enraged like slaver scum um yeah you really you just see what his you know how his past has defined him and we again, we've never had him interact with slavers up till now again and it's really cool to see this 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 aspect of his character that's always been there, but we just never really had a chance to see. So they go undercover, and I, I really like the design of the city. It feels a lot like they're kind of going to Game of Thrones. It's like this quasi Middle Eastern like Babylonian architecture, um, just really interesting design. But we find out this is the Zygerian slave empire, who's uh, this is a nation that thrived off of a slave trade that was crushed by the Republic, and now that the um, now that the, the separatists have control of this area, they're kind of rising up again and, and uh, recreating their slave trade. And we go, we go through it. Just the, the, we just get these images of just how just hor- you know, horrifying the, the entire prospect of slavery is. We see you know, all of these different species and chains and being whipped. So uh, we meet the queen. And I think that she is a very fascinating character. Like she is like a, a fully committed slaver and you know she's she enjoys her position you know on top of the slave empire and yet they don't make her fully evil they give her like she's actually a really fun charismatic character and uh we have there's a scene where 
Anakin's still pretending to be a slave trader, and the Twi'lek, one of the Twi'lek slaves goes to assassinate the queen, and he stops her. And then the Twi'lek goes and commits suicide, and you realize, like, that death is on Anakin. Like, he's trying to maintain his cover, but now th- that slave is dead. And it's, like, this really, like, hard moral quandary to put our, you know, our characters in. Yeah, and that scene itself is just, you know, pretty dark because afterwards after the death like the first thing the queen says is you know like it it seems i'm in a new or i'm in need of a new slave and just kind of laughs about it and it's you know we've dealt with like you know a hive of scum and villainy before but there it's just this whole situation just feels like we are really surrounded by the absolute worst the galaxy has to offer um but yeah i do like that she's not just this like oh I love beating slaves. Like it's it's by the by the time of her death when we get to that, it almost feels as if she just views everybody as having a position they have to to fill. Like everybody's a slave. This was her part to play, and she was just going to be the slaver. Um, you know, you, they didn't explore it a whole lot, but I just thought it was interesting that you know even in a position of power like she was in. The way she looked at the hierarchy, like or the hierarchy and the the structures, you know, I was only doing this because this is the position I'm in. You know, they're doing that because that's the position they're in, and life is just going to keep going on as the way it should be. Yeah, she's kind of portrayed like the the, the classic femme fatale, where she is like they actually risk making a character who is so evil likable, and like when she has Anakin at her mercy, like she's trying, she likes Anakin. And so she's trying to like corrupt him or break his spirit. Like she, like there's a moment where he like breaks and force chokes her, and like she's not even phased by that. Like she knows she has total control of him, but she actually she wants him to want to serve her and to serve at her side. And there's this whole thing where we're kind of going back and forth. These where Obi Wan has who's been captured is being broken by the the slavers, and Anakin. And she's she's also like side by side trying to break Anakin in a different way by you know by offering him power and by you know essentially placing trust in him. And it is just a very interesting thing they're doing with her. And then just kind of as a side note, um, I I think we benefited from this being animated because I'm not convinced, especially at this point, that Hayden Christensen could have pulled off being charming at all. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably right. The other moment I loved in this episode, it's it's more towards the end, is is the escape scene that is just very in your face, recalling memories of Return of the Jedi. Yes. Yeah, I, I love this. There's a line from the uh, from this, the auction here talking about uh, the the Tegruda, They're pacifists, so they make great slaves. It's kind of throwaway line, but it's, it's so dark. And um, so Anakin's told to whip Obi Wan, and then they go through. Uh, where R2 has the uh, has all the lightsabers and Anakin does that exact same kind of salute with his finger. And then but the, the, the fight scene, once they all reveal themselves, is really cool. There's a really great physicality to the way the um, Zygerians fight with their whips. Like it just, it, there's like real momentum and weight behind it. And just the, the way the camera moves as Anakin gets the whip and he's like flipping around with his lightsaber and the whip, like knocking the guys down till finally there's like dozens of guys who like all whip them at once it's really really well put together sequence 
And of course, we've got that awesome fanfare behind it the whole yeah. time. But I, I do want to talk a bit more about uh, where Obi uh, where they're trying to break Obi Wan in this like hellhole. Like the first thing we d- happens when he arrives, the uh, the the kind of the taskmaster just kills like six uh, Togrudas just at, on a whim to to kind of prove to um to just prove to Obi Wan that he has all the power. And so his his notion is he's going to break a Jedi by taking away the one thing that defines them and you know their selflessness, their ability to help others. He takes that away all that away. So whenever whenever Obi-Wan acts out, he punishes an innocent. And we see it happen a couple of times till Obi-Wan till Obi-Wan's just left with nothing. You know, he he can't help. There's just suffering all around him. And anything he does to help just makes it worse. And the other two gurus are kind of turning on him because he's making, you know, they're taking the brunt of his punishments. And it's this really brutal montage where you have like him. I think it's either, it's either the, 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 the leader of that area or the queen kind of monologue. And we just see Obi-Wan just like forced to work and change. And it's really disturbing. Yeah, and it's, it's just the imagery of that whole scene and how brutal it is and how, how brutal it allows itself to be. It's, you know, I mean, it should be the subtitle of the series, but this is not a kid's show. Yep. So as it turns out, the, um, the Zygerians have been working under Dooku, and Dooku wants all of them dead. And the queen, this is, it was an interesting moment where she, she's been having this debate with Anakin to where she's saying that the Jedi are slaves because they have an ideal that they, they, they serve, um, they subject themselves to. And she has a line that, uh, commitment commitment is slavery when it comes at the cost of yourself to where she she wants to try and make pretend she has this independence like even from an ideal but then when dooku comes in and um and is trying to order her around she she kind of like throws a fit turns into a spoiled child and it's almost like her pride is destroyed like that the moment where she realizes she has just been a pawn she kind of just turns around and is, is like broken and helps Anakin escape. Um, it's just, I think they just, just give her kind of a fascinating little arc. I kind of wish we had longer with her to, you know, to, to make the transitions feel a bit smoother, but it is really interesting the way her character goes, you know, from the, all these various extremes and it, it all feels kind of believable actually. And at the end when uh, Plo Koon and the, the wolf pack arrive, which is again, they're so freaking cool, but as they're coming to rescue him and when they're like, after all the, these, these last two episodes of, you know, slavery and being broken down when they're finally able to break free that there's this rage behind everything. Like they're, they're not like they're, they're fighting living creatures, but they're not even trying. They're, they're just going to kill everybody. And it's like this whole rage fueled battle as we go through. And, um, and we, we, when they, 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 they've beaten the uh the warden and he's like well you know you're a jedi you wouldn't kill an unarmed man and then rex throws the spear and through his chair is like i'm no, I'm jedi. no jedi and it's like th- th- like they are going full-on revenge or jedi or not they-, they are going completely for vengeance right now there's so much hate and rage even in obi-wan's character like it's it's almost kind of disturbing. It would would it would be disturbing if it wasn't so satisfying to see how evil these slavers are. Our next episode is a friend in need. Uh, this one is directed by Dave Filoni and written by Christian Taylor, 
And this one, while on a peace delegation to Mandalore, Ahsoka once again meets Lux Bonteri as she attempt as he attempts to avenge his mother's murder. And then they find themselves deep in a Death Watch plot. I I almost kind of wish we could have stayed behind and watched this uh meeting. Like we come in and this is like the first legal meeting between the Separatists and the Republic, and it's happening on Mandalore. And I kind of I almost kind of wish we could have an episode about that to see how that turned out. Because I'm guessing it didn't go well because the war went on, but like, for, like they they put so much emphasis on how illegal it was in the previous episodes. I was about to say not even it'd be interesting not even to just see the the meeting play out, but to see how it was established. You know, because we we had seen so much story um, about trying to make this happen in the first place, and now we're just kind of told in the opening narration, you know, hey, it's finally happened. But I'm cool with it because it lead it ends up leading into one of my favorite episodes of the season. Yeah, so we see a, so Lux Bonteri breaks in and basically accuses Count Dooku of his mother's murder. And uh, he's the son of uh, the Sen- Senator Bonteri, who we saw back in pursuit, of, in a pursuit of Peace, or no, heroes on both sides. And Dooku had her murdered to stop the peace talks. And so the droids bring him in and uh, to face Dooku. And he accuses Dooku of murder. And like, like you, you, you know what you did. And you, uh, uh, you, like, you killed my mother, remember? And he says, I've done a lot of things, young man. And choose to remember them in order of importance. And the death of your mother seems to have escaped me. And it's just so evil. Yeah, like, I almost wish that we got more, like, live action stuff from Christopher Lee. Because I would love to just see him, like, just existing as, like, the most evil guy in any room. Yeah. Uh, so Ahsoka saves them and they they have to escape. And Lux goes... So, like, he hates... It's interesting. Like, he's in a, a really unique position like he's he hates the separatists because they murdered his mother but he's also he's been a separatist all his life so he he has no, he doesn't trust the republic at all so he doesn't want to go back to the republic so he stuns ahsoka and they go to death watch um so and he's been working with them to try and uh uh ensure dooku's murder which like last we saw death watch and dooku were aligned i guess at some point Dooku betrayed them because Death Watch in this episode, Death Watch hates Dooku just as much as everyone else. So I'm not entirely sure what happened. I kind of wish we saw that. Yeah, especially when you you know with this the reveal of the scar. Like last I saw Dooku, he gave me this. I was like, oh, well, would've been cool to see that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, we kind of see that like Lux is like well on his way to becoming like uh, another Boba Fett. We see him making those same mistakes that are like leading to like leading to suffering in this kind of this blind path of vengeance. Yeah. Whenever we actually do get to the, the snow planet, like I said, you know, obviously Umbara's is the greatest art of this uh, series or season, but this individual story may be my favorite. Uh, I like, but you mentioned earlier, the position Lux is in. Um, it seems like, you know, with a lot of the, a lot of the episodes, people are either torn on the separatists or the Republic. And then something happens like, okay, well the Republic are clearly the good guys. Um, we'll have more to say about this in Lux's appearance in season five, but I, I like that, you know, he, even after the betrayal, he's not like, okay, well I'm choosing the Republic now. It seems like his principles for opposing the Republic yeah. stand. Um, and so he's not going to be like, okay, well I'm just joining the other side. Now all of a sudden my ideals are different. He is in this position where he's like, I cannot go back to the separatists. I will not join the Republic. I am simply going to like, he's just living it a day at a time with like the most 
near goal he can see. And at this point, it's just the assassination of Dooku. Um, and, you know, turning to Death Watch makes sense. You know, barring the fact that we, we really don't know why they're at odds with Dooku. Um, but as far as, you know, a group of people that can get it done, that works. And then you see just how evil Death Watch is, where they've kidnapped a whole bunch of village girls. Um, <laughs> like they forced Ahsoka to start serving them. She got like, hungry? Careful not to choke on your own stupidity. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Vizsla just kind of comments in passing, like, oh, it looks like she's integrated herself well. Like, like that's just what you are to do when you arrive here. Especially, you know, it's darker, considering, you know, she's introduced as his newly betrothed and it's like this is just this is the way they run things yeah i, I would say like they're misogynistic except for they have female warriors i'm guessing they're just racist maybe yeah so it uh kind of basically this deal gets worse and worse and lux is kind of trapped in there and then the uh, the village elders from the local tribe come over and try to dem- demand the return of their daughters and uh Vizsla agrees but when we get there, he shoots the daughter in the back as she's going to her father, and they say, kill everyone, you know, never let the weak tell you what to do. Welcome to Death Watch, kid. And they start burning the village and slaughtering the villagers. Um, and it's a really horrifying sequence. Like, Dave Filoni, like, it seems like he comes in to direct when the episodes get really dark. Um, and this is, like, really disturbing. And the, the animation is gorgeous. This, like, the snow has, like, improved. Like, we were talking about how pretty it was like the snow effects were back in Trespass in season one, and they've come a long way since then. Just the whole atmosphere is really well done. And then they have the fires and the snow and Ahsoka comes out and just starts fighting and they take her down. It's just this really, really dark scene. Yeah. Him, he's like murdering the granddaughter in front of her grandfather. And she's just lying there in the snow. Like the only thing this episode was short on was like a, you know, watching the snow turn red around the body or something, which I'm sure Filoni probably tried to do or something like that. But, yeah. but yeah, the the visuals of this planet and the, um, you know, like especially whenever they start burning the village and we've got the the reds juxtaposed with the, you know, just how peaceful everything else looks, snow covered. It's a very dark scene, and then of course it's all kind of happening as uh, as R two is. <laughs> fixing uh and gaining the the friendship of all of these broken down and beaten droids that have been forced to like either be target practice or fight each other or or whatever um and then that ends up leading to one of the coolest moments of escape ever which is of course you know Ah ahsoka had been uh tied up out in in the scene where they burned the village and she's now there on her knees and R2 comes in to free her and she jumps and does a backflip and like in one move decapitates the four <laughs> Death Watch members around her. So cool. And like just the person in me who loves lightsabers and just action. And I mean if you're a fan of Star Wars action, you've kind of have to be a fan of excessive amounts of dismemberment. Yes. Yeah. Um and then we have a really cool fight uh between Vizsla and uh Ahsoka with the dark saber and it's framed against the, the whole camp's on fire and there's lasers flying everywhere and it's really gorgeous. Um, and there's a pretty cool speeder fight and they finally escape. Um, and Lux is still kind of a doofus and, <laughs> and goes off on his own again. I, I like where we leave his character though. You know, he's, he's clearly learned that he's, he was in over his head there. 
but he's still again like rightfully not aligned on either side of this war and i think it really sets him up well uh with where we meet him at the beginning of season five which we'll talk about later yeah I, despite how stupid he is i do i think he is a likable character and kind of a like he could have so easily turned into just kind of this whiny person we hate and want to die but yeah, he he's able to give him some depth. Um, an interesting note: uh, Bo-Katan, the uh, the female like second in command for the Death Watch, is played by uh, voiced by Katie Sackhoff. Yeah, so next episode is Deception, uh, directed by Kyle Dunleavy, and this arc, this arc is written by Brent Friedman. And this one, after learning of a separatist plot to kidnap Palpatine, Obi Wan fakes his death to go undercover as a bounty hunter and investigate this uh, threat against the cha- the Chancellor. This one has a it has a cold open. Where we're with that Anakin, Ahsoka, and Obi Wan out in the streets, and then there's a sniper starts shooting at them, and he kills Obi Wan, um, and it's really dark. And we go through the whole thing, like we Anakin goes after the sniper, and he comes back, and Ahsoka's holding Obi Wan's body, and there are tears in her eyes, and then we go through the whole funeral. We just cut to Anakin, and he's just this like rage in his face, and it's not to like five minutes in that we actually figure out what's going on, um, with we find Obi-Wan who's actually fine. He was wearing a breastplate or whatever, and he took this medicine and he's going undercover. And I like that. They actually, they played it straight for you know, the first you know, five minutes before we actually find out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird how effective it is considering we like, we know revenge of the Sith is just around the corner, but I, I think it's effective because of how well they're able to sell the reaction. Like you said, the tears in Ahsoka's eyes and, and her comment during the funeral where she's like, I'm, I'm worried about Anakin. He hasn't spoken a single word since it happened. And you just see the rage festering in him. Uh, I, I think it means so much because you know the implications. And it may be even more effective with Revenge of the Sith in mind because we know the implications stuff like this has with Anakin. We know what this kind of deception leads him to, and and it's a very like, dubious moral choice that the, that the uh, Jedi are making to to deceive all their own uh, in this way to and to go undercover and and work right alongside these these evil bounty hunters because when he gets in there and, and they escape later on, Obi Wan is helping them escape, which directly leads to in, like guards being murdered. Like he doesn't kill anyone himself, but he's the one who opens the door that lets them get into the room where they kill people. It's like he's really putting himself into a deeply morally compromised position. Yeah, and I like that the episode doesn't really just ask us to to gather that ourselves. Like it's affecting Yoda, and he's consistently throughout. Like as he's going along with the plans, he's never saying no, um, but he's consistently commenting like this may not be the best course of action like he, he he seems very affected by it and fully aware of the fact that you know we're doing this and we're not stopping because we're in too deep but like there may be like lasting effects from this just the fact that we've allowed ourselves the jedi to stoop to this kind of deception i like the fact that you can see that it's affecting him mm-hmm. and i yeah, there's a line you know, headed down a dark path we are and uh, so they they shave Obi Wan, and I like how he turns basically kind of into young Ewan McGregor. Uh, they had to like design an entirely new face. He looks almost exactly like Ewan McGregor when he's uh, bald without his beard. Which just I remember um, the first time I saw that, and he had like no hair at all. I'm just like this is wrong, <laughs> especially after uh, 
you know, I mean, I feel like between episode two and three, he's kind of like defined by his facial hair. But uh, oh well, I do like that they they make him look like uh, like Ewan. Yeah, so uh, uh, Obi Wan disguises himself as the bounty hunter Racco Racco Hardin, which is I think a really cool name yeah. for a criminal. Yeah, and he goes undercover to. <laughs> Oh, I love this guy. The, the the guy he's investigating in the prison, his name is Moralo Ival. Yeah, real, real subtle name there. Just add it to the list of names like that. Yeah, he's a voice by Stephen Stanton, uh, who does. I think it's a really cool voice. Yeah, it's it's really iconic, and I think he does a great job of like not sounding like other characters he's been. Yeah, he's uh, he's the guy who voices Tarkin, and he also voiced uh, Admiral Rattus in Rogue One. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, but you left out the best character, which again is Colonel Gaston. Ah, yes, we will get to that next episode. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Obi Wan goes into the prison, and he kind of tries to ingratiate himself with Ival, uh, who has allied himself with with uh, Cad Bane, who has been arrested at some point, and it doesn't work. And I, I like that. Uh, later on, we see that. We see uh, Boba Fett's in prison, and it's just kind of like a, a great use of characters where Ival hires Boba Fett and Bosk to start the fight to get the escape. It's just like you have these characters, and we know they're in prison, so it's kind of just using characters we know to serve this tiny role in the episode. It's kind of fun. Yeah, and you know they're even carrying over the themes. Like as Boba first approaches him, you get that that low kind of couple notes. Yeah, the escape's pretty intense. A lot of people die. Again, you know, seriously making you question everyone's choices. One little thing that I actually liked a lot about this is I feel like something that frustrates me sometimes in whether it's in this show, although this show doesn't really do that, but with other shows where someone is forced to disguise themselves as someone else, it's like the voice just comes along with the image. And I like that they actually take the time. You know, they're questioning Racco Hardeen but pretty much only for the purpose of getting enough of his voice into this little emulator and that you have to swallow that. They, they stole that from Mission Impossible 3. It's At least they took the time to steal it instead of not doing anything. Yeah, and so like we have, after they escape, we have, we have, he basically, he, Obi-Wan helped them escape, but uh, Cad Bane still doesn't trust him because he wouldn't kill, he wouldn't kill one of the guards. And so they're in this really weird situation where like, he's kind of tagging along and inserting himself into this group. And, and, and Cad Bane is trying to get rid of him every step of the way. Uh, like where they, they go to, they go to a, like a black market dealer. And at first I was like, when he go, he, when he assaults the business owner, I was like, man, this, there's no way Cad Bane survived this long in the underworld. If he's just, you know, picking fights everywhere he goes. But later on, it's revealed that he actually, he assaulted the business owner to get the cuts to come. So he could, he could then abandon Hardeen to them. It's it's really cool how much detail goes into like making Cad Bane always a guy with a plan, and the plans always in like in retrospect make a lot of sense. And this, this is the same with uh with uh, Obi Wan. He like I love this entire episode takes place on Nalhada, and they're both kind of maneuvering around each other, like without ever actually facing the other, trying to you know get, pull one over to where uh, you know Bane betrays Hardin and tries to leave him to rot. But uh, he he uh, he put a tracker on their ship, so the huts shoot him down. Shoot them down. They still escape, and they come back to the bar. And he's like, "Hey guys," <laughs> and they have to again, you know, team up together. And they're you know pretty much back to the exact same situation they were before. Um, 
basically every word that is spoken across this episode is a lot, is someone lying trying to play the other people. It's it's really the whole episode is this this moral quagmire of basically everybody trying to deceive other people. And, you know, like you know, we we were supposed to know that Obi Wan's the hero, but it's almost as if he's completely overcome by this Racco Hardin. A persona to where he's completely at home in this world of uh, you know deception and I, what was one, one thing i noticed was that when, when uh he's contacted by mace window his code name is ben yeah that, i thought that was really cool because i didn't even notice it i think the first time the second time through you know when he says ben especially in you know it's weird hearing that name spoken on this side of like the star wars eras but it's just a cool little touch yeah. So uh, Palpatine obviously is wants this plan to succeed. He's also probably trying to corrupt Anakin, but he's he's the one who tells Anakin that it was that where Hardin is. And so Anakin, who's all this time still he still thinks Obi Wan is dead and that his murder has escaped prison, just goes after him on you know pretty much pure vengeance. And we get this really crazy chase, spaceship chase, and where they're fighting out in the spaceship and they crashed and Anakin and. Like Anakin almost kills Obi Wan a couple times, and again, this is a really cool fight where we have the bounty hunters fighting the Jedi and like barely saving each other's lives at the last moment, until finally, uh, I think, uh, yeah, Obi Wan ch- starts to choke Anakin out and whispers, "You know, don't follow me," into his ear, and uh, Bane goes to kill him, and Ahsoka jumps up there and she's like standing over his body with the two lightsabers. She looks so fierce; it's really cool. Yeah, the action there is really, really cool. Uh, bits of it almost remind me of like the the scene in Winter Soldier where he's you know jumping on the the Quinjet and everything. Um, uh huh. It's through that moment where she like I took note of it as well where she's just kind of standing over Anakin. I don't mean this like in a degrading way, but it just kind of reminds me of like a like the loyalty of a duck to like stand over its owner. And obviously that's not at all an implication on their relationship, but it just shows, you know, she's. Or a mother, like this, this feral animal protecting her cub or something. Yeah, it's something along those lines. Where it's just this, this complete like dedication to this kind of loyalty, um, and it almost you, for me, you know, she's just as a part of of this Anakin Obi Wan dynamic as they are together. You know, they have you know great chemistry in Revenge of the Sith, and you know, there's almost been an entire like meme culture generated around their relationship. But, you know, watching through all of these seasons, I almost feel the exact same way about her and Anakin. And, like, I have the same kind of love for their their dynamic and their addition to to Star Wars um, as I do Anakin and Obi-Wan. And I don't even think about the fact that she's actually not present, you know, in Revenge of the Sith or anything. And I, I just feel as if you kind of feel that history going forward with all of these uh, movies. Yeah. And as the next episode is The Box, directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And this one, Moralo Evol, puts the bounty hunters through a deadly series of tests. Um, so this, this episode always kind of bothered me. Like, it's a really cool episode. It's, it's just basically all, like 10 bounty hunters in this room with all these crazy challenges, like killing them off one by one. Uh, very very kind of like a Saw, a Saw movie or something. But you know, what always bothered me is that, well, first off, who, what bounty hunter would volunteer for a this uh, challenge where right up front, they tell them, you know, only like six of you are going to make it out. The rest will die. And if you, and, or, or if more than six survive, the extras will be disposed of. Like, first of all, why would they agree to this? 
I guess when you're someone like Cad Bane, you just know you're going to make it. And secondly, like the challenges aren't even necessarily a matter of skill. Like a lot of them can only happen if, if like, like one of them is one where only one species can reach through the ray shield to, uh, to do it. Like what if that guy had died? Everyone would have died after that. Like the, the things aren't even a matter of skill. However, watching this, like it didn't make sense. If, if they're really trying to find the best bounty hunters, these, these, these obstacles made no sense. However, watching the behind the scenes talking with Dave Filoni, he said that this actually wasn't a test of skill. It was Dooku putting it on to find out if it was actually a Jedi. Like the, the, the way these, the, these chests were designed, a Jedi would have to reveal himself and that he actually, he discovered who Obi-Wan was in the midst of these tests. And that makes sense as to why the tests aren't, aren't skill-based however it doesn't make sense at all like why would he even suspect a jedi was among these bounty hunters in the first place and secondly if he knew who obi-wan was why did he send him along on this plan like he could have easily eliminated him and they would have they would have had the upper hand throughout this entire heist it's just i don't really understand dooku's what dooku's after like with this test or the allowing obi-wan to go along knowing who he is yeah that's weird i definitely didn't know that and that makes no sense <laughs> especially considering i feel like we're supposed to take him at his word when he just says you know watch uh racco hardine you know there's something i don't trust about him i i feel like if you, just a clean reading of this episode that line is supposed to be genuine to me but but, but then he does he, he does bug uh obi-wan's gun so he does obviously suspects him. Yeah, and like to me, the bugging makes more sense because if he already knows it's him, then why bug? Him? Like it, it just feels like the whole bugging makes more sense whenever he's like, "Yeah, there's something off about this guy." I just kind of want to have close tabs on him, and that's of course like the mic being there is is what tips him off and why he doesn't show up. But I mean, why why would he ever? I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. Why would he ever go along with this if he knows that it's Kenobi? Uh, yeah, and what's weird is another reason that that doesn't feel like it completely holds up is it also feels like Moralo Ival is like, he seems to be the architect of the box. Um, and he seems pretty convinced that this is, for, cause, you know, whenever they're first all going into the box, he says, this is designed to create scenarios you might find yourself in. First of all, really? Like, <laughs> these the <laughs> pillars are going to rise up and down with lightsabers sticking out of them maybe we don't know Theed is a weird place um, that doesn't really make sense and again yeah, it seems like he's the one doing all of this and that, I feel like that's confirmed with the way he feels pressured into impressing Dooku with this these this machine that he's created where Dooku's like it seems like they're getting the best of you uh, Eval and you know he's constantly trying to get the upper hand almost like he's showing off with this thing he's built so it doesn't yeah he's trying to he's trying to keep his place as the leader of the team yeah but it just it feels as if he's doing that by using something that i i feel like we're meant to think that he put together it doesn't feel like the box was something invented by dooku to kind of like sniff out jedi it, this feels like something that evol had constructed mm -hmm. like it feels yeah. like his baby and so that doesn't make sense but for me the other thing that bothered me about the episode what was so i understand that 
Ival wants to maintain his place as leader of the operation. And it makes sense that he would want, if if this box is something he's made and he is supposed to be whittling it down to the best, it makes sense why he's he's genuinely trying to kill some of them. But it gets to a certain point where it, it feels like there was this weird amount of like some like pseudo respect between he and Hardeen and Bane. He almost feels like a different character in this episode where like he just wants to kill them all. Like he's he's evolve. Yeah, where yeah. he's just turned into this random antagonist where you know like he's actively trying to kill Hardeen and Bane and all of them. And it, well, the, 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 well, trying to kill Hardeen sort of makes sense because uh, Dooku is taunting him and saying that if that uh, Hardeen might take his place. Yes, that's that's true. But even so, it just feels like this is not the same kind of character we saw before. I, I don't know. There, there's just always something off where it feels like he's stepping into a role for the episode that it it didn't feel natural. Um, yeah, like I said it, it to me. I don't. I think the entire idea of him potentially losing his seat as, as like the leader of the operation was only there so that we could, we could have like a, a you know a quote unquote antagonist for this episode, but really I just feel like the mm-hmm. box itself could have been the antagonist. We we don't really need him to be the, you know the man in the screen the whole time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the the fact that nothing makes sense at all. This is still a really fun episode, I think. Yeah, it's it's crazy how much I look forward to this on every rewatch. Like, I just like that it's so self-contained and it's just this competition of feats and stuff, trying to survive. Yeah, just a lot of crazy things, like with a, like these lightsaber things coming out of the wall and stabbing through people, and uh, this one with the same gas uh, dioxys that they uh, mentioned in um, Phantom Menace comes back, and uh, there's a couple ones where they have to shoot the wall as the as the um, the uh, platforms collapsing it's just a bunch of fun little things and i love when uh when, uh, when hardeen cheats and tries to kill uh no not hardeen when uh, evolve cheats and tries to kill hardeen and uh cad Bane saves him he's like he's finally just earned his respect and you go if you're gonna kill him do it like a man which is a, one of my favorite lines from the entire series such and it's made all the more awesome with his voice and accent yeah it's, it's a it's a really fun little episode very self-contained but it doesn't, doesn't make any sense so the last episode, Crisis on Naboo, is directed by Danny Keller. In this one, uh, Palpatine travels to Naboo to preside over the Festival of Light under a Jedi guard as Count Dooku and the bounty hunters move in to kidnap him. This one, the it kind of cutting back and forth between Obi-Wan and the bounty and the bounty hunters setting up their entire plan and uh Mace Windu and Anakin, who now knows that Obi-Wan's alive, uh protect protecting the um the Chancellor while Obi-Wan's kind of giving them piece by piece what he knows of the plan. And I think it's a fun little episode. Um, there's some really cool stuff happens at the end, but uh, they have uh, these hologram disguises for the, uh, for the, for the bounty hunters where they, they can, uh, they look like the Naboo guards or actually no, the, the Imperial, the uh, Senate guards, which are just a really cool design. If we haven't mentioned before. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it's a lot, like a lot of stuff happening, like the, the like a bunch of double crosses where, Oh, Obi-Wan's in a sniper position, he, uh, relaying all the information to the Jedi, but he's been bugged, so the other guys have their own plan going on. And so finally, when they, when they kidnap him, one thing I don't like is where you have Obi-Wan, he's looking down through a scope on everything that's happening, yet somehow they're able to trade to change 
someone else into the chancellor using the hologram technology and he doesn't spot it especially considering how buggy this hologram it feels like they're like glitching up and revealing the faces like every five seconds <laughs> yeah so they trade off the the chancellor and obi-wan meets up with them and after a brief fight they're all kid they're all captured and it looks like they've won um but then I guess this is what the real plan was all along. To like another problem, like similarly with the box, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So all of this, this whole craziness of the last four episodes, was to create what was only a diversion to make to to get the Jedi to put on a bodyguard to defeat this threat. So they think they won. So the bodyguard would leave. So that Anakin would be alone with Palpatine when Dooku came so that Palpatine could test him to see if he was powerful enough to be his new apprentice. Like, is, is that your reading as well? So whenever whenever they find out, whenever um, Cad Bane says, you know, Dooku is a no-show, I, I took that as... You know, Dooku hearing the... Like, I thought that the actual plan was to have Dooku show up there. And the reason he was a no-show is because he had the the bugged case and he knew the plan was flawed, so he already booked it. And then... And maybe this isn't what we're supposed to take away. This is just this is just the way I saw it. Was that... In, in, somehow, uh, Palpatine was kind of able to let Dooku know that, you know... The Chancellor and Anakin are are over here. Although I guess, you know, I don't think Dooku knows. You know, I don't think we're at all supposed to think that Dooku knows Palpatine is Sidious. So I don't know how how he, Sidious would be able to say, "Oh, I know this, but I'm also not there." Yeah, I'm not sure how the whole thing works out because because once it finally happens. And we walk. They walk into the dining room, and, D- and Dooku's there, and, and him and Anakin fight. And we just have, uh, you know, Palpatine watching with this really greedy look on his face, like he's. This is like this seems to be like what the main plan was all along. In which case, the all the steps feel kind of ridiculous. Like the steps they took to get there, feel really ridiculous. Um, in retrospect, however, we do have a really cool fight, and we see a Dooku. Is he's throwing uh different objects at Anakin while he's fighting kind of the same way that Darth Vader uses on Obi on, on Luke in on, on Bespin. Yeah. And the other uh, reference to Bespin there, you know, whenever they first enter in and he's just kind of sitting at the table, I couldn't help but picture, you know, the same with Vader whenever Solo and them are led into there. Yeah. And I think Dooku knows what's going on. I think Dooku knows that he's testing his replacement so like, he's really going to try and kill Anakin. And at the end, um, after Obi-Wan's joined the fight and they've been forced to retreat and they've rescued Palpatine again, he's like, so long, Master Kenobi, you've been a worthy adversary. I can't say the same for your apprentice. It almost feels like, it feels like he's trying to poison the well, like he's speaking to, to, to his master right there. Just like, yeah, I'm still better than these guys. You know, Don't pick him. That whole like relationship, and I know people say this all the time, you know, it is so interesting where... You know, you know the cycle is that you will rise up to kill your master. Stuff like this, it almost you wonder why they get into this. But then I, I guess it kind of explains. You know, it makes sense to become the the apprentice because your role 
kind of is to kill your master at some point. But with the character of Dooku, do you think he was ever... Do you think that ever was his intention to usurp Sidious? Um, I, I think so. Okay. He's, he's a true Sith. Yeah, he, he definitely seems dedicated to... And we see him taking on various apprentices uh, and training them, so... That's true, and That's I don't think Sidious is really unfounded in his suspicion of what um, Asajj could have potentially become. Yeah. I don't think he's terribly connected, to, like, uh, attached to Sidious. So yeah, it's it's weird how much I love these episodes, despite the fact that they make zero sense at all when you stop and think about it. I think this... I'm just diving into this really grimy underworld with the Obi-Wan undercover is really cool. That's and, why you just don't think too hard. <laughs> yeah, and also I love what this does for Anakin. Um, where this completely destroys his faith, faith in the council. And this is a line where he's talking, they, you know, they lied to me. How many other lies have I been told by the council? And you just see that he's he is really angry at the fact that they would they would put him through this. And you definitely see the seeds of his downfall yeah. there. And it's in that scene, it even seems like Obi-Wan, instead of getting mad at him um, or accusing him of having like a lack of understanding, it seems like he he sees the credibility in the accusation. You know, like we don't really have a defense when he says how many other lies you can't really answer that with none after the events of this. You know, you've you've gone on a mission where you're complicit in the deaths of numerous people and you've deceived your best friend and several of the other like of the entire Jedi Order and, you know. Yoda's really right. Like it does set the order on a dark path. Yeah. All right, uh, next episode is Massacre. This one's directed by Stuart Lee, and this arc is by Katie Lucas. Um, so Count Dooku is taking his revenge on the Night Sisters, uh, and he sends General Grievous and his army to destroy them. So this one picks off pretty much, uh, pr- I guess, pretty quickly after uh, the the final episode in season three, where Ventress has kind of, I guess, given up her her plan of revenge on Dooku and has now decided to give herself to the Night Sisters and we have this really creepy uh, initiation ceremony where she goes into the green smoke and comes out in a new costume and she's now a sister. Um, and all that happiness is brought to nothing when <laughs> a Grievous and a whole army of droids attack. And like, there's something about Katie Lucas's episodes where there there are no heroes. Like, there's no good guys or bad guys. It's just we're thrust into this real this dark world where each side is just a selfish evil group fighting for its own own ends. Um yet she's able to make it really compelling. Yeah, I do like it. Like just based on like the point of view, we do have like a side that we are technically rooting for. Um, but it almost feels like that side is completely determined by who we get to see more. Um Yeah, I, I like all of the nuance where it's it's also it's being built off of several episodes before you know there's always kind of that hinted rivalry between Ventress and Grievous whenever they were on screen and now kind of giving that an outlet to actually be played out like physically is cool and of course yeah. it's coming off the heels of, of Ventress's not really betrayal but a, you know attempted revenge and and then we still kind of have Savage's existence in the back of our minds for the episode and and of course like the very end um yeah, it's, it's it's really cool to see where it almost feels like Katie Lucas isn't even really concerned with everything else in the series. She's just crafting this very, like, really cool and moody and atmospheric character-driven story 
where it's like you don't even really have to worry about protagonists or anything you just create different tensions and the all the payoffs are there it's i would really really end up liking her episodes a lot yeah and it's all it's all working towards turning ventress from this you know cackling evil witch that she's been in all previous episodes into a legitimate character like we see like after the initiation she actually she has you know she's found another place to belong to you know she was kind of lost after dooku betrayed her now she's devoted herself to the night sisters and you see her displaying like genuine care for her sisters around her like when they die she's really sorrowful it's it and it's like through this episode with no heroes, we get to see her slowly becoming, you know, human. She's like showing us new emotions we never saw from her before. Yeah, so th- this one, this episode is basically taken up between a, a, a battle as the Night Sisters are gathering to defend their home. And I, I think like it's really cool. Just the Night Sisters are really pretty awesome warriors. And they have like these laser bows, which are just awesome. It's impractical, the, the, but it looks so amazing. Yeah, and we have there's this ancient night sister called Daka who calls up the, the army of the or basically all the dead night sisters and we have a whole army of zombies just yeah, yes please. Uh who come in and oh gosh, they're so creepy the way the way they move, like their heads move around and they have these and their eyes are just like glowing green with the smoke with the, the witch the witch magic kind of drifting out like smoke. Oh, it's really, really disturbing. Yeah, I love it whenever Grievous really gets out into the battle and gets his hands dirty. Like, there's that moment where he picks one of them off the ground and just straight up rips the arm off and throws it back at it. It's very gruesome. And, uh, like, Ventress is actually like, genuinely being selfless here. She runs into the heat of the battle and challenges Grievous because she knows if they can defeat Grievous, they can win. And she actually defeats him. Like, they, they really go at it and she defeats him. But, of course, he's Grievous, so he cheats. Um... And uh, has her shot, basically, so she's wounded. And then that's where the tide turns, and he leads the attack. Oh, because at the same time, uh, Mother Talzin has created a... Uh, she's created a voodoo doll of Dooku. And, and is, like, dipping it, uh, like, jabbing him with needles and dipping him to this boiling liquid. And Dooku's, like, breaking out in these boils all over and writhing in pain. And there's one shot where she like bursts out of his chest like an alien and is talking to him. You're telling him to call off the t- attack and he's just like writhing in agony. It's, 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 it's dark. Yeah. So even with my reservations of like the night sisters and the visuals, I respect the fact that they're like, screw it. We're doubling down on this. We're going straight voodoo doll. He's breaking out in boils. You know, we've got this, an actual cauldron and you know, this ancient, uh, Night Sister who's summoning the dead. It's like they they go all in on any anything they planted earlier. Yeah, and Grievous, even though he's defeated by Ventress, he still gets to be pretty great, pretty awesome in here. Where he just walks in and grabs Doc and impales her and goes to kill uh, Talzin, but she kind of dematerializes and to come back later. But yeah, it's a this whole episode is just. Ventress finding a home and a family and then having that ripped away from her because of her actions, which is, yeah, you do feel for her again. She's again, once again, lost without any kind of purpose or guidance. And she's, she's, you know, she found a family, but through her, her vengeance had it destroyed. And I like, you know, I think because Katie Lucas has just been the one writing all of this, it almost feels like you really could have watched this immediately following the last we saw of them because this feels so true to her character. The fact that, you know, like her defining 
trait before was this almost need to latch on to something to serve or to something to be a part of. Um, and again, it's when, you know, we've seen her commit so many evil acts, but to have it once again stripped from her, like the second that things are right again for her, like the world is familiar and she's stepped into a role where you just have to tick off the boxes. You're not really forced to be, you know, on your own and to strip that from her by the end of the episode, you feel for her as, as she's pleading with Talzin to not leave her. Yeah, the next episode is Bounty, directed by Kyle, Kyle Dunleavy. And this when you have Ahsoka just kind of wandering around, and she joins a team of bounty hunters under young Boba Fett. Um, and they're sent on a mission. And I, I, I think uh, she, I think she's on Tatooine at the beginning. And she's at a kind of a, a, this bar. <laughs> like, this is like a, like a anti-sexual harassment PSA, where a, a guy pushes her too hard, and she just impales him. But it turns out he was uh, part of she he was part of Boba Fett's new bounty hunter syndicate, and they basically tell her whatever you know you kill one of our guys, so you gotta take his place. And now she's a bounty hunter, which it kind of makes sense, you know, the kind of character she is. Yeah, it's it's almost cool. I almost wouldn't have mind like you know several episodes just kind of following Ventress, you know, post losing the Night Sisters and seeing what her what her life now looks like, where it really just kind of is moving on from one thing to the next with no clear direction. Yeah, so uh, this episode, this I, I really like this episode. Uh, it's kind of funny. They have to create an entire planet just to justify the existence of trains. Because, like, why would you have trains when you have ships? And they have to explain, well, the atmosphere is under this pressurized thing, so if you had a plane, it would blow up whatever. We wanted <laughs> so, trains, dang it. Kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, they wanted a train. Um, so, yeah, this one, so, you know, you have Boba, Boba Fett and his bounty hunters, who uh, you have a uh, Bosk, uh, Dengar, Lots, Ratsy, Embo, and uh, is that it? Oh yeah, there's a uh, there's a robot. I forget his name. Yeah, so they're, they're on this train and they have to guard it from basically uh, uh, like Ninja Turtle uh, ninjas. Like they, they look like villains from like a Ninja Turtles episode or something. Yeah, Power no, they, Rangers. They definitely feel like they're they're from the hand from Ninja Turtles to me. Or no, the, yeah. the foot. So. so this entire episode is just one long action sequence as these uh, unending stream of ninjas jump on the train and slowly one by one whittle down the bounty hunters. Like even though like none of the bounty hunters die for some reason, but they they kill a lot of these guys. And we're we're treated to Simon Pegg voicing Dengar, which is awesome. Yeah. Yes, it's just a lot of really awesome action. Um, a lot of cool hand-to-hand combat, and they they really do. They act like ninjas, and they have these little knives, and kind of slowly one by one knocking the people off the train until it's finally down to um, till it's finally down to Boba Ventress and the uh, the captain. <laughs> like you know, over my dead body, <laughs> he just kills him. Yeah, I, I think one of my favorite things about this episode really is just like the the aesthetic and the visuals because you know sure it's a forced explanation to justify the train but the train looks really cool and like seeing it chased by those giant like rideable centipede things it just makes for an exciting sequence and there's some like really cool long shots will move through the train going between various uh, bounty hunters as they're fighting for their live lives and. Yeah, so finally in the end, we realize that it's actually a... Uh, they, were, they were given a box to guard, and, and then we find out it's actually a a young ch- child bride in the box being delivered to this really sleazy uh, warlord or whatever. And it's the uh, the ninjas who are attacking were her family, and the main guy is her brother. <laughs> and I love that Ventress 
like she obviously feels for this this girl who's kind of in the same situation she was she had been in one time where she you know she's been sold into slavery and and used by other people so she, uh, she's not quite a good character yet so she 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 doesn't release him she she forces them to pay a ransom again but she she sticks Boba Fett in the box and gives uh the girl back to her people only after she takes the pay from from the guy who hired them and from the ninjas uh and leaves but I, I, it's kind of funny that she does she gives the money back to the um to the to the other bounty hunters. I guess she's smart enough not to to betray bounty hunters. She knows what'll happen then. Yeah, and I also feel like that stems from maybe this newly found honor that she's trying to create for herself. Um, you know, she even says, you know, or maybe acknowledges that she would have done that, but you have that last line was like, "Now I have a future." Um, it feels like she's even though she just got through being incredibly deceptive, feels like she is moving on to this new new path away from one almost defined by like deception and um, and greed. Although I guess greed still play a factor here, of course, because she did end up still accepting the money from the from the brother. Yeah, and it's just so crazy to think that now. Asajj Ventress, you know, the Sith assassin, is now a completely, you know, complex and compelling character in her own right. Yeah, it, to me, it's it's just really cool. You know, the the show inherited her from from the uh, Tartakovsky one, and you know, she was kind of the highlight for that for me. But it is cool how they kind of take the the bones of what that character was, introduces her here in a similar way, and just grows her into more than you ever thought she could have been by the end of this arc. Uh, so for this final arc, this is also written by Katie Lucas. The first episode is Brothers, directed by Bosco NG. In this one, Savage Press is going to seek his long-lost, uh, or long-thought-dead brother, Darth Maul. And this is the mission he was sent on at, in the uh, season finale of last episode. What a time to wait for that revolu- uh, resolution. I can't imagine, you know, it's one thing to be asked to wait until the next season. It's another to get, like, 20 episodes into the next season before it's even addressed. So we basically open up on he's 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 just this evil creature. He, we meet him. He's attacking a woman in a diner, and basically he spends the entire first half of the episode assaulting people and stealing things. And he's just like a bull in a china shop, except the china shop is the world, and he breaks everything he touches. So he goes to this trash planet, which uh, reminded me a lot of a uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Uh, I think it's San Diego, the trash sector. Yeah. Did, did that remind you of that, of <laughs> yeah. that at all? I, I, it actually did. I, I was watching with my sister, and I, I just made a joke. I'm just, I said I was expecting to see one of those giant uh, ships that would just hover over and dump all of the trash, just kind of floating out in the background. Yeah. So he goes there, and you, you run into a lot of weird creatures, and he meets this snake, and there's acid rain and fire-breathing droids and whatnot. And eventually he ends up... Uh, under up down some caves, and there's this crazy spider creature track uh, um, stalking him, and then it comes out and it's small with these long crazy horns. He's all skinny and gaunt and just raving mad, and this giant spider's body and it's absolutely horrifying. I was really put off the first time through because I I knew Maul like like I said I mean obviously everybody knows who's listening like I did not watch it when it first came out I went years and obviously I was I was aware of a lot of the things that happened so I knew that 
Maul was returning. I knew that's what we were looking for, and he he was going to be back for several episodes. Whenever he was revealed, and he's just he's got the the spider legs really surprised me to say the least, and I was not into it at first. And then just having him like blabber on incoherently, you know, in this high pitched voice, just. It, it was not working at all, but now on rewatches, to me, like Sam Witwer is just giving an incredible vocal performance here. Like he, he sounds raving mad, and it it's not cheesy or anything. It just it really sounds like we're just listening to a lunatic. Yeah, and like he he's obviously taking over from Peter Serafinowicz, and who like he in his three lines, all we got from Maul was like he had a very you know subdued, smooth voice. And the amount of emotion and rage and madness that he's able to get into these like raving monologues while still maintaining that exact same voice is really interesting. Like over the like over the course of this and Rebels, I think Maul gets a lot of great monologues, and and he's always like there's always this boiling rage underneath. I think uh, Sam Witwer does a really great job, um, you know, creating this character and the fact that they actually brought him back for the live action in Solo. Or spoilers, <laughs> uh, yeah, as you know, as a testament to the, to the character he created, because like there was no real character there; it was just evil in the Phantom Menace, and like, he had to, he had to you know basically create it from scratch. Yeah, I, I think any any reason he was anyone's favorite before was strictly from design, um, because it's just such a striking image. But here, you know. Whenever I think back on Maul now, you know, visually my mind may go to to what I saw in The Phantom Menace, but just as a character, everything I have to draw from pretty much comes from from what Whitworth's done and Filoni. Yeah, and Lucas. Lucas. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she just did something incredible with him. Yeah, it's really cool that it was her both behind both turning Ventress back and then creating Maul as a character. She must like evil people. <laughs> And making evil people incredibly compelling and interesting. And yeah, so like I, I love this, I love this spider body is held together by the force. Like there's like these pieces that are kind of like quivering on the outside, and the whole thing's like rattling. And like it, it the, the 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 it feels like the texture of his body changes based on his mood as he's like wandering around and raving. So Savage brings him back to Dathomir, and uh, Ven- uh, Talzin comes back, uh, and they recreate they create a new body and she heals his mind somehow i, I don't know if she died she probably she probably like did something like she did to savage to turn him into whatever she wanted him to be but she heals his mind and gives him new legs and man, the visual of of the new legs is so crazy where like she like carries over all this trash and like puts it on there and then like turns it into lava and so it, it all this like all the slag melts off, leaving these new mechanical legs, and he's like screaming and writhing. It's really, really disturbing and really cool visual. Yeah, and not at all what you expect a kid to be watching on a Saturday morning. So I, I like that this seems to this is what would happen to a Sith if they fail. Like everything about the Sith is you know doing these doing whatever it takes to gain power, and your and you know Maul was brought up. Uh, with these promises of you know you're a sith your destiny is to rule the galaxy and then to have all that taken away in a moment the it's like he becomes he he's reduced down to this single desire for revenge like 
since the Sith have no empathy, everything is about what I can have. Like I deserve to rule the galaxy. So to have that taken away, he like he puts all the blame on that on Kenobi. So he's he's since he's left without power, he turns into like the you know that the stark raving madman. But the only thing that remains to him is vengeance. This, this need to strike back at the person who, in his mind, wronged him. Like, I deserved the galaxy, but Kenobi took it. So Kenobi is evil. It's like it's such a warped mess. Stuff, but but that, that is what the Sith worldview is. But up till now, we've never seen a Sith who has been defeated. They've always, they've always, all the Sith we've seen before, and are in control. And this is what happens when a Sith has been completely destroyed. One of the things, I, I don't remember if it's in the beginning of the, or at the end of this episode or the beginning of the next one, is his whenever Savage mentions um, the Clone Wars and that they're happening, and Maul knows about it. And I never thought about that, you know, because Palpatine obviously plans really far ahead. And, you know, with this knowledge, uh, Maul may have, you know, originally in, was supposed to be Dooku, essentially. You know, he yeah. he was supposed to be the one to lead this. So that kind of goes along with what you were saying where, you know, you've got all of these plans. Your entire existence is bent towards this and it's now all stripped away. And for him to come back to sanity with the knowledge that 10 years has passed and all of his goals and aspirations are literally like dividing the galaxy and he was to be the one heading that. And now he's just this inconsequential creature on the sidelines. But I just never thought about that. The fact that, you know, had Phantom Menace not have played out the way it would have been, he would have been the one to lead the Separatists. And that's exactly what he was being groomed to be. Like, that's really interesting to me. Yeah, the, the sense of self-entitlement that he bears with him. Like, this is where we see that Maul, unlike Ventress, was a true Sith. Is so, so for Ventress, when she was betrayed, her desire for vengeance was just because of that, the personal anguish you would feel when, some, when, a, when someone you cared for betrays you. But for Maul, his desire for revenge against Obi-Wan is like, it's because Obi-Wan stole my destiny from me. You know, I was destined to, as you said, you know, to, to be the one at Sidious's right hand as he conquered the galaxy. And now I'm this like this mad raving madman living like a rat on a trash planet. It's like he's he almost feels like his vengeance is like this righteous quest because Obi-Wan stole that from him. Is is really interesting peek into the mind of just how the Sith think. And of course, because you know, we're we're at the ending of the the season here, but it just they give you all these ideas of what Maul could potentially be. Because, you know, with his he's only had a, a couple of moments of even being on screen in the Phantom Menace, and of course he's killed. We don't even really get to speculate on on what kind of character he is, and now all of a sudden by the end of the season with who he is and what his goals are, you know, we're only left to to wonder uh, how they're pretty much going to define a full character in front of us. So Maul goes to this planet and he says, you know, in a galaxy at war, there's only one way to gain attention of the Jedi, slaughter of the innocent, mercilessly and without compromise. And he does that and we get a hologram of where he lines up a bunch of civilians and then beheads them while ranting 
for Obi-Wan. Yeah. I love that, um, that, you know, even before that, they're all like before the, the hologram, everyone is kind of aware of Maul's return. Like that's, yeah, yeah. that's the impact he had where everybody feels this disturbance of the, in the force where like this player, this key player who is supposed to no longer be a factor is now returned and is now like active potentially. Yeah. yeah like his, it was was also over the over the course of the previous episode. I forgot to mention where we cut back to Anakin, to Anakin, Yoda, Dooku, and Ventress, and they're like they're all like something is very wrong. And I like just there's so much evil pent up in this guy that they just the entire galaxy can feel it. I think it's kind of weird that Obi Wan would go by himself. I don't, I don't know if I entirely buy that he would be dumb enough to do this. Like he barely defeated Maul the first time. And he's obviously back to full power. It just seems like a really stupid move going by himself. Yeah, I don't even remember the line. I know that he was actually, like, wasn't it Windu who calls him out on that? And for some reason, Yoda backs Obi-Wan and says it's justified. I don't remember the reasoning. Yes, yeah, like, it's like basically, you know, it, it, we, we see this a lot of time where we be like, you know, I've got to do this alone, and they really don't have to. Here's <laughs> what it feels like. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Where it's like, this is something I have to do myself. It's like, okay, yeah, you can be there, you can head it, but <laughs> I don't understand. There's there's no real practical reason why why you're going by yourself. Maybe it's just they suspected that Maul would only do something worse if he felt, you know, that Obi Wan had something else up his sleeve. Yeah, obviously he didn't know about Savage. He thought it was just Maul. So he goes there, and then we, and, you know, he's walking through the village, and we have this amazing shot of a uh, Maul framed against the sky with the flames behind him, uh, as he's like just raging Kenobi, all this stuff. Um, yeah, it's just really like we've gone like straight into hell. Then a uh, Savage comes out, and basically just Obi Wan is taken out pretty quickly. And then they take him to the ship and they're beating him up. <laughs> and you know, he's still cocky. He's like, you know, when I cut you in half, I should have aimed for your neck instead. <laughs> and at, at some point in the, in the episode, Ventress had taken up the bounty on Savage. So she goes and um, sneaks onto their ship. And she goes and uh, after after they've beaten him to a pulp and leave, she goes and revives Obi-Wan. And then it's her. And it's just the, the shot of her and Obi-Wan back to back with lightsabers is just so satisfying it, it's like for me it's up there with the shot of uh kylo and ray you know back to back against the, all the guards it's just something about seeing two former enemies you know stand side by side to fight with each other it's just something just so satisfying about that yeah it, it's cool you know we talked about how much ventress has grown since we first saw her um in that christosis arc uh and, and it clearly hinted at a backstory between her and kenobi um, and so it, it's it's weird because they've always kind of had that like they've obviously been enemies but it's almost like this playful back and forth they have and that kind of continues on with this very very like tenuous alliance um, like you know just with like you know uh, switching the lightsabers was like red is not my color it's <laughs> the whole dynamic together is really really cool because of the fact that we're on season four now and they're you know, we're not even just having to reference the history of the film. Like we have three years of our own history we built up here that we're able to draw from, and and that moment of them back to back actually means something now because of what we've seen. 
and they get along so well. Like just they've always had their own kind of rapport to where like when they've when they fought in the past, and you know, they it's almost like they're flirting, just the way they banter. And I, now that they're kind of on the same side, I would have liked to have seen if we had like an entire arc of uh, Obi Wan and Ventress together, because I think they they have just really great chemistry. And as the fight's going, they're kind of like tossing lightsabers back and forth between each other and saving each other's lives. It's, it's really fun. But uh, yeah, they're, they're really no match for these guys. And there's one moment where after they're separated and Obi-Wan's fighting Maul, and there's a moment where uh, I think Obi-Wan completely gives over to and starts fighting with anger. And it doesn't work with him. Like, And you're looking back to um to episode one, you know, after Duke, after, not Duke, after, uh, after Qui-Gon was killed and he goes after uh, Maul in anger that he was all, that's how he was defeated. Like Maul was able to beat him at, because uh, you know, anger is Maul's game. And so when, when Obi-Wan tries to fight out of rage, it, it's just, it's not him and he can't do it. Yeah. It, you know, it's one of those few moments we actually get to see Obi-Wan give in to anger like that. Uh, just because of what this entire, the entire point of this Clone Wars era cinematically is to watch the downfall of Anakin and, you know, to see him just like succumbing to anger and Obi-Wan's almost always been that constant. And so now to see him, it's kind of similar to seeing him and, um, uh, um, Satine where it's like, we get brief glimpses of that. Like the Jedi are all kind of capable of falling to certain situations the way Anakin was. Anakin just had really bad luck. Uh, you know, like Obi-Wan is it's it's possible for him to just completely give in to his anger in the moment and strike out in anger. Yeah, so we uh, we had that there's a line where um Obi-Wan's like, yeah, we're outmatched. You want to run? Well I learned from watching you. <laughs> and so they, they escape into the cockpit and and uh jettison the uh the two Sith and which that, that seems like a really Bad design, but hey, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Like the, these, the last this this, it's not really a four episode arc. It's kind of a two two arcs written by Katie Lucas. But I love that they're both kind of the tale of two former uh, Sith apprentices, and basically what each Sith apprentice does in the face of failure and abandonment. And you see like these two like drastically different responses between them. Yeah, and, and what's weird is you know because. This is definitely setting up a, a really big arc. And the next season, it feels like these last two episodes were the whole like were the was was the purpose of what Katie Lucas was was writing, and that you know the episodes before so easily could have just like and maybe they really do kind of just exist to set uh, Asaz Ventress up as a bounty hunter to get her into that situation, and yet you mean the Night Sisters episodes yes. Yeah, like like those the episodes of her and the Night Sisters, and then the subsequent one with her as a bounty hunter, like almost exists just to make sure that she can be a bounty hunter at that time and like include her in this episode. But she, you know, from those two episodes and this, it's crazy how much she has changed. And we obviously mentioned that a lot uh, whenever we talked about those last episodes, you know. But you know, we we really do have. And I wasn't even really thinking about it until you mentioned the fact that these are these are two different former Siths. When you take these two two mini arcs and kind of put them together, and you just see 
the way these two people have have existed for this sole reason for so long how how differently they adapt to like the the idea of a new life it, it's really cool to me yeah all right uh so that is it so yeah it ends with uh with Maul and Savage trapped inside the ship without a cockpit. So yeah, before we close out the discussion, uh, what are your top favorite, uh, five favorite episodes and your favorite arc from this uh, season four? Okay. Uh, so top five, I might, uh, number five might be, um, I actually really do like water war quite a bit. Um, and I, I think of, of all of them because my biggest complaints are the fact that it, it feels a bit tedious that doesn't set in just within the first episode. So that one, I'm usually every time I get to it, I'm all on board, uh, all on board for, from start to finish. Um, and I might say uh, between I, I really like Deception and Friends and Enemies, but I may go with Friends and Enemies, just because you know it's Obi Wan is like the the stage has already been set from the very beginning, and we just get to go on this really cool different kind of mission with obi-wan um and i i love cad bane as always um <laughs> that's that's one of my favorite uh, episodes as well and then i would say revenge but what that's that's just number two um i would part of me wants to say uh nomad droids but i would, I would probably end, oh my gosh. <laughs> because i just really enjoy that all the weirdness um i might do uh slaves of the republic though um okay i i really that's one of my favorites as well. yeah I, I like that one i like the the female villain i thought she was really interesting i like the the whole aesthetic of that of the whole place is really cool and very exotic yeah and i feel like they bring a lot of mature i mean not that the show needed any more like any higher level of maturity but just the way it handled um the topic of slavery for such a for just a singular arc i thought was was fairly mature in the way anakin handled it and it brought up his past was good uh and, and then number two would be revenge um maul is just awesome i love the fact that he's a character again um he's completely savage the the beheading scene is is <laughs> genuinely striking and it does lead to that just incredible ending with all, all four of those characters there and then lastly i'm not going to choose i'm just going to answer with my favorite arc which is darkness on umbara it's <laughs> what i love about that is again this is one where it just feels like you cut out the beginning and ending credits to these episodes and you it's just a singular movie um the way it progresses is perfect. It's constantly having you question everything. It builds this sense of dread and paranoia and confusion. It's just such a perfect story start to finish. And like I said, you know, it's if if it's not my favorite, it's tied for my favorite arc of the whole series. Visually, thematically, it's it's just near perfection. So yeah, yeah the whole arc. favorite arc is kind of a joke here. <laughs> Um, yeah, if, if I could only pick one favorite episode from that one, I'd probably go with uh, Carnage of Corella. I think that's where like, all the paranoia and doubt and cynicism reaches its peak. You mentioned most of my favorites, but the last one would be uh, Bounty. I just love being with Bounty Hunters, and I think this, this whole episode is just really fun, crazy action, and I, I, I like following Ventress kind of on her new life. All right, um, so that was season four. Uh Again, before we close, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and give us a rating review on iTunes. 
and to like us on if you want to follow and if you want to follow us you can like us on facebook we're there at franchise fatigue podcast uh if you want to follow us on twitter we are there as franchised pod and if you want to find our other episodes you can go to franchise fatigue and uh, next week, we will be joined once again by Josh Crabb from Home on Radio to talk about season five. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is going to be epic. Yeah, I mean, what's great about it, it's sad to have already finished Darkness on Barak, but what's great is that we have another, actually, really a couple of just incredible arcs coming up. So. I'm very much looking forward to discuss, uh, discussing it with someone like Josh. We were really going to be able to get down into the nitty gritty of these episodes. Yeah, it's going to be four hours. <laughs> Just telling you now. <laughs> per arc. So until next episode, we will see you in the next season. Live to fight another day, boys. Live to fight another day. Live to fight another day.